man. It's fucking talking about vinegar syndrome stuff and etiquette pictures. I'm always fucking ready. You should have saved that crack for that for the show. to the Screamcast, episode 80. I am Sean DeRigger, and with me, as always... 80? Yeah, man. Uh, Brad Henderson. Seems like we've been on 80 for, like, ever. <laughs> we just got there. We were on uh, 79 last week. I guess. I only That's know mess it up. <coughs> it's time. a mile fucking stone right here. I guess. <laughs> fucking 80 uh, episodes. BJ is stuck in some uh, dress rehearsal shit, so she may not make it on. We'll see. I extended the invitation. If she feels up to it when she's done, uh, she may join us. Um, if not, she won't. Uh, but we do have, I'm told to introduce him as The Q. I don't know. Uh, from Birth, Movies, Death. What's up, man? He goes by Jacob Q. Knight on Twitter. Hello. <laughs> Don't call me the Q. <laughs> <laughs> I was about, yeah, I was about to say, let, we got to cut that shit short soon. Uh, well, you know. Um, I was going to call you Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, that works, too. Okay. You never know who anyone is on Twitter, everybody. <laughs> you never know. It's true. Um, so you guys, uh, you guys were hanging out at Fanta- Fantastic Fest together, right? If you want to call it hanging out. I mean, well, something something was hanging out. Wow, that <clears throat> that didn't happen. <laughs> How involved is a uh, birth movie's death uh, death at uh, Fantastic Fest? Do you guys get involved with a lot of stuff? Or are you there just as press? Uh, what's what? Because I know you guys uh, were created through the draft house or by the draft house. Or what's the story with that? Because I'm you know well, I just knew you guys as Badass Digest, and that was it. I'm not in the well, know. Yeah, well they um. Devin started the site when Tim League, uh, the you know creator mm-hmm. or of the Draft House, basically wanted a film website to kind of go along with the business, and that's when you know Badass Digest started, and he brought on a bunch of you know writers kind of over the years, and then it changed to. Birth Movies Death, because in the Draft House, there's the print version of the magazine, um, and it was kind of a – more of like a you know a, a brand synergy, if you will, to where just everything kind of syncs up now to where you have Birth Movies Death online, you have Birth Movies Death in the uh, theaters, okay. and we also have uh, hats now, which is really weird. <laughs> Because they're they were they're selling hats with birth movies death on them in the draft house and I saw people wearing them at Fantastic Fest and I was like, That's I don't know, that's, weird. That's, that's kinda weird. <laughs> yeah. That's weird. Nice. Okay, because I was wondering one once I because I was I was fond of the name Badass Digest because that's all I ever knew it as. And then when it changed, I was like, What the fuck are they doing? And uh yeah. but then I did find out about the you know, design and stuff, so that's that's cool. Yeah, you you and everybody else was kind of thrown <laughs> by it. But, I mean, I, I really like 
I like the the new name. Yeah. It was weird to tell people that you wrote for Badass Digest. Not that I didn't like that name too, but that was cool. But I mean, um, your know, birth movies death is a, it's a little easier to call mom and be like, hey, I, I write for birth movies death instead of Badass Digest. She's like, all right, right, okay, yeah, that works. So apparently, a lot of people are getting disapproving looks from their mothers for ba- badass digest. Yeah, I don't. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, uh, today, <clears throat> excuse me. Today whoa, we're, whoa! We're be you sick? In. You getting cold? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. No, you are uh, okay. <laughs> we're finally going to be getting back to the uh, uh, v, uh, the video. Oh my god! Segment and uh, that is really the, awful. Stream squeeze. Stream squeeze. Stream. Jesus Christ! Christ. Basically, we, we, we took a hiatus from our segments, and, I can't and even, they're back I can't even today. Talk. I just need you to relax. Jesus Christ! Uh, the yeah, segments are back, and they're back with a bang. I hope bang, so. Bang bang. I hope so. Um, we are going to be talking about some etiquette pictures uh, stuff, as well as some vinegar syndrome. Uh, vinegar syndrome release, kind of changing up a little bit. Talking some non horror when we when everyone else is talking horror. So we're going to change it up a tiny bit. But first, got to jump into what's on our doorstep. Holy cow. I almost forgot. We'll get the door. Pizza. <laughs> Jacob, do you have any what's on your doorstep movies? I do. All right, let's hear it. Now, are we... Am I allowed to talk about stuff that I saw in the theater, too, or is it just specifically what Dude, showed up? fucking talk about whatever the fuck you want. We don't even care. We're uh, open to movies. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I guess the, the number one thing I absolutely loved is when I actually ordered um, Some Call It Loving and uh, American Dreamer, I also threw on like one of Vinegar Syndrome's, you know, like $10 double feature discs and i got uh sweet trash Ooh. Which oh yes it's <laughs> so good i uh, saw it it's on a disc with the hang up i believe it is i haven't watched that one yet but i just watched sweet trash last night and i'm at a loss like i i was trying to tell somebody today uh, like what it even is and i'm not even sure that i'm good at describing what the film actually is it almost plays as like this perverted crime thriller that's like 79 minutes long and it's so garishly colored like it's all bright like that opening hotel room that we kind of crawl through is has that bright red carpet like everything just kind of jumps out at you it's it's really yeah. Really quite something. Um, but it's it's a crime movie about a longshoreman and a loan shark. And um, the loan shark basically, you know, the, the longshoreman gets in for like six grand in a card game to the loan shark. And then the individuals that the loan shark works for are like these shady – I don't – even know are they government officials they never actually explain it but no, they no, take orders yeah from, they don't really say it yeah they, they take orders from a computer who like says like they have to kill certain people if they you know rack up enough amount of debt and so the longshoreman goes on this crazy like psychedelic journey where he's on the run it's almost like watching somebody's nightmares like it's almost like the worst stress anxiety dream put the film <laughs> 
but almost if like it was written by Arthur Miller while he was doing blow in like a Denny's bathroom in 1969. <laughs> like it's you're you're just watching this guy mentally collapse and run around and talk to like Puerto Rican prostitutes. And at one point he jumps like does a skydive through like a church window on a 20th floor of like this warehouse. And but the whole time these weirdo hitmen are on his tail, and there's also a they never really tie narratively the crime boss slash figure who's like he comes off as almost flamboyantly gay with the way he's dressed. He has these crazy flower scarfs and this wild lisp, but then he just is surrounded by naked women the whole time. So the whole movie is just a clash of uh, insane aesthetics that drive you wild and you that you kind of just fall into and it's only 79 minutes long by the time like you think it can't get any nuttier it just ends and just leaves it there for you perfect uh, it's, yeah are, it's are you familiar with any john hayes other work because vinegar syndrome has actually released a lot, a lot of his movies um that you know, he's I'm, that he's directed and written you know i'm not and this actually came goes back to even before like you guys asked me to be on the podcast and stuff and do like the etiquette pictures and vinegar vinegar syndrome stuff which i'm a huge fan of anything vinegar syndrome does so i'm really excited to dig into the rest of this dude's work but uh at fantastic fest i was talking to do you know matt lynch from scarecrow video yeah yeah yeah. like we were just hanging out uh, outside before uh you know whatever we were seeing next. And I love Matt Lynch. Like he's as like a trash cinema guy. Like, I don't think there's a whole lot more on this planet that are more knowledgeable than he is. So he, we can just, I'd love just hearing him rattle on for hours about this stuff. And he really went on about John Hayes and sweet trash and about how great it was and how basically outlandish it is. And now I just, I want to watch all of this guy's movies because if he dreamed this nonsense up, God only knows what else it is. <laughs> nice. It's it is available if you've signed up for Exploitation TV. It is available streaming there. Yeah, yeah I, I think some of his because he's uh, they've released. I think Dream No Evil, The Cutthroats, The Hang Up, um, Sweet Trash. I want to say Hot Lunch. They've done as well. There's a vampire uh, movie he did too. Yeah, right? Grave of the Vampires. Fucking great. Yeah, there we go. That's the next one. I want to watch The Hang-Up, and then I want to watch Grave of the Vampire. Then I might just keep going because it gives me an excuse to keep watching whatever Vinegar Syndrome puts out. Yeah, awesome. no, he's he's done uh, – yeah, he's – all his movies are very batshit, and they're very – they're just very quick too. They, they don't last very long. They're like an hour, hour and ten minutes. And Which is great. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, because that, that much insanity sometimes, because most of his, the films that I've seen from him are very comparable to Sweet Trash. Okay. So, Which means you know, he'll my favorite director ever by the time I'm done. Yeah, he's <laughs> um, definitely one of a kind. I, I will say that. So, yeah, definitely, definitely pick up uh, Sweet Trash. Um, he almost, he almost seems to come at least from the same school of DIY kind of outsider art filmmaking as guys who obviously he had more of a career than these dudes. But when I, when I watch stuff like, uh, by like Craig Denny who did the astrologer, obviously, or like Duke Mitchell's stuff, 
Um, or yeah. if we saw Dangerous Men, just a fantastic fest, like that really outlander stuff that still gives you this uh, singular vision of the world that could have only come from, you know, it only comes from this weirdo yeah. at very minimal resources, but kind of a, a vision that. Well, they're making the movies that they want to see, too, you know? Yeah. I, that's how it feels. Yeah, no, totally. And it's so, and, and that's when you have when you have movies like that. It's it's more you can feel the passion behind it, no matter if it's how bad it is, how goofy. There's a certain aesthetic to it to where you can, I don't know, kind of attach yourself. Especially if you've ever wanted to make a movie or wrote a film, I, I think you can show more of appreciation, more for a love when you know that someone put their heart and soul and do something like, like you said, dangerous men. I mean, how long did that guy work on that movie? He said like fucking 20 years. Yeah. It was insane. Well, was you know, night. Yeah. It was like 1989 to like 2005. Was it? Yeah. It was until like insane. basically he died or whatever. Like, is he died like in 2010? But I mean, from the, from making the music to editing all that within 20 years, like that's a huge accom- accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, in a way it's some type of failure, but that failure is turned out to be success in every aspect of a film film lovers world because I mean you finally you finally got I mean I guess Hollywood would call that a failure but to us that's an achievement I mean he never gave up and he created something that's super unique and very memorable and it's just not a throwaway movie like Hollywood blockbusters are where they're totally forgettable after you watch them. You know, you yeah. watch Dangerous Men once and you can kind of remember the whole thing and you could talk to your friends, you know, months and months after it. You know, you don't have to watch it again to recollect what happened or, you know, what to do. It's it's one of those movies that just stick with you. And I, I guess, yeah, very comparable to, you know, John Hayes films as well. Yeah. I mean, and also with Dangerous Men, very few movies have a scene where a, a girl – Pulls a knife out of her butt cheeks to stab her. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the w- stranger things I've ever seen in a mo- in a movie theater, or when uh, just a movie just fucking ends like right in the middle of the scene. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, shit. Uh, uh, but anyways, that's great. Yeah, but uh, I guess the that's been the main thing that's been on my doorstep that I watched that I totally kind of went nuts for. Um, I would say that if I had another pick, I would talk about something I saw in the theater, which is, have you guys seen, now, I always wonder if I'm butchering the name, but is it Sicario? I guess it's Sicario. I was saying Cicero for some Cicero. reason. I have no I, idea. Sicario, Sicario is how I would say I it. Sicario. Sicario, but then it has the Roman translation in the beginning, and it had me thinking Italian to where I was, I was saying something <laughs> in my head very similar, like Cesario. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but, uh... Sicario might be—I don't know if it's the best movie I've seen or a best American film I've seen this year, but it's very, very close. Um, have you guys seen it yet? No, no, I have not. I have not. I, and it's funny because my my boss came to me today um, and was like, "Dude, you need to watch Sicario." <laughs> I was like, "He's like, have you seen it yet?" And uh, he was, and uh, he's he's a he likes movies, but he was just going off about this movie, so. Yeah, it's um, it's weird how it's um, it's very accessible uh, for even that guy's movies because I mean obviously it's Dennis you know Villanueva who did um, you know Prisoners he did Enemy 
Um, and like Prisoners, it was accessible. It obviously was like a mainstream film, but it was also like a two and a half hour crime procedural slash like almost not to give away some of the stuff in the ending, but like a satanic horror film in a way or played on that satanic panic from like the 80s and kind of traded in that iconography a little bit. But um, Enemy is a total like art picture dis- despite even having Jake Gyllenhaal in it. Uh, it's a very strange, cold Cronenbergian movie that is really, really good. Um, but it's it's one that like – you know, kind of like you just said, Sean, like if you have a buddy at work or like a boss at work or whatever, who's like kind of like halfway into movies or is like just kind of likes mainly like mainstream stuff. Like I would have trouble being like, oh, yeah, you should totally watch Enemy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, this movie is incredible because it's it's lean. It's two hours almost on the dot. I think it's like two hours and four minutes. Um, and it works as a hybrid of like this almost Michael Mann or William Friedkin style uh, amoral procedural about these FBI agents who basically get called into this government task force to uh, go down to Juarez, Mexico. And essentially, without saying it, but they basically allude the entire time that nobody's ever going to get arrested here. This is an assassination um coup almost or assassination plot uh, hatched by our own CIA uh, to basically take out the, this cartel head or at least like flush him out. But it, it works as half of that level. It gets very meticulous and it's procedural a lot like how Michael Mann like loves to kind of fixate on details of how cops basically get from point A to point B and with like those kind of levels of deduction – an investigation. Um, but then also it works as kind of this kick-ass revenge thriller with Emily Blunt's character to where she is, you know, cause she's initially roped in because of an explosion while she is investigating basically this, um, almost like stash house for a cartel member across the border. Um, and it takes out, you know, a bunch of her men in this team. Um, so she gets recruited on with the sole intention of let's just, let's go after these guys and avenge ourselves. And, um, by the end, it almost turns into like a Lovecraftian horror film being, it's about descending into these dark depths of like humanity and really seeing how awful human beings can be in the name of profiteering and, really just being cruel to one another. And it's, dude, it's a hell, it's a real hell of a movie. I, I was super impressed with it. Nice. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it. I wanted to see it, there was a weekend I had, actually had a Friday night free, and I wanted to see it then, but it was limited. And then, but then the next weekend, when it opened wide. Uh, did it open wide this last weekend or the weekend before? Uh, I think it was the, the last weekend of yeah. Fantastic Fest, because it was the first movie okay. I saw in the theater after okay. Yeah, and I haven't been able to make it out to the theater since, but it's uh, it's on my radar. If I ever get a free night, I'm gonna go check it out. But I'll be I'll be probably just blind buying this Blu-ray when it comes out. <laughs> it's it's worth it. Well, the other thing that's great to to watch for too, if I can try and urge you. Obviously, I know you you got responsibilities and stuff you got to attend to, 
But if I could urge you to sneak away and get out the door, uh, man, that Roger Deakin cinematography, sure. the big screen is wonderful because yeah. he, again, he balances almost like a zero dark 30 feel um, with watching these like tactical squads kind of descend uh, on these kind of cartel bases and into these cartel tunnels. Um, but also mixes it with almost like the stuff that he was doing in assassination of Jesse James, mm, okay. where he linger on, he lingers on, uh, like curtains flapping in the wind or like after a shootout. And it's, it's those moments that happen basically in between the bullets that are like the real kind of cinema happening for you. And it's, mm. it's really wonderful. Nice. Yeah, I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to make it happen for sure. Hey, it's my birthday this week, so... Uh, Happy birthday! We're going to make it happen. Yeah. Make it happen. My birthday movie. I always go out and see one movie on my birthday. Wow. I do the same thing. What was, what was it last year? Uh, I forget what last year was. I, I, saw, I know, I, I, know I saw Sinister shit. on my birthday. That was two years back. That That's was probably years Lord back. of the Rings... What should be Lord of the Rings? No, and I saw... Um, it's going to be Lord of the Rings. Oh, shut up. No, um, Drive uh, drive on my birthday once. So I, I, I always go, you know, the more upscale things. It's a very I uneventful take... conversation that just happened. I was <laughs> expecting more. I used to take, like, a bunch of friends to movies, and they would always get mad at me because it wasn't, like, anything really mainstream. It would be stuff, something like Punch Drunk Love or uh, Confessions of a... Teenage Drama Queen? No, uh, so was Sam Rockwell and uh, George Clooney. Fashion was dangerous mind. Yes. I was just giving you shit. And I would always get shit from people who didn't like the movies I was choosing. But... Like Freaky Friday? No, I didn't go to Freaky Friday. I did. Anyway, <clears throat> enough about me. Is there anything else, uh, Jacob? Uh, no, I think everything else I kind of watched was the stuff we're going to talk about cool. anyway. Okay. Um, so... I would pass it on to whoever's next. I'll go next. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I mean, other than the stuff that we're going to be talking about, uh, the only thing that I want to mention was uh, I finally watched Insidious 2 and Insidious 3. I've I've had Insidious 2 since the Blu-ray came out, sitting on my shelf. I've never watched it. And like everything uh, else. Insidious... You're, you probably could have been better not watching it. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm a huge fan of the first one. I uh, love Insidious, and I'd heard mixed things about Insidious 2, so that's, I think that's kind of why it kept me from grabbing it, but uh, Insidious 3 came out, so it was, uh, I grabbed it, and um, and I decided to mail out we all finally watched 2, so I watched 2, and uh, I, dug it, I dug it. I had a lot of fun with it. It's definitely not as fun as the first one. I mean, that red-faced demon or whatever is just fantastic. Like, there's nothing that comes close uh, in Insidious 2, but they kind of build the mythology a little more. I feel like uh, the story and everything kind of crumbles a bit under this just more and more mythology kind of getting uh, piled on. But overall, I, I thought it was fun. And then once it ended, I was like, and uh, with every and every movie, the first one had like a cliffhanger, and this one kind of has a, you think everything's fine, and then of course a cliffhanger, and then... I was like, well, shit, I gotta jump into Insidious 3. And then I remembered, oh, shit, it's a prequel. So, uh. Prequel! Yeah. So I wasn't gonna get the satisfaction of finding out what the hell happened, you know, next in the story of, uh, of everyone. I'll keep 
keep any spoilers down, I guess, if you're like me and haven't seen it, hadn't seen it in Cities 2. So then I, I, seen it. <clears throat> I was all amped, so I popped in in Cities 3, and, uh, I, I dug that for what it was, for what it was. I think, I feel like they were trying a little too hard with the jump scares th- this time around. Like almost, it was amped to 11 with the, the music and everything. 11. But, uh, 11. But overall, like, I think this is a strong series. Like, you know, a lot of horror movies is kind of diminishing returns once, uh, we get to two and three and four and five or whatever. Um, and, uh, this one though, like, this, this series, I think it's staying in line with all the mythologies building. I think it works. It's kind of having fun with it. Like with the cities too, there's a kind of a time travel esque element where things that happened in the first movie, um, you find out what caused those things and they're, you know, different from what you assumed, I guess, after seeing the first film. So overall, like, I think it's a, for me, it's a strong, it's one of the stronger kind of, you know, uh, haunted type movies you know i would definitely check out insidious 4 rather than another freaking paranormal activity movie how do you how do you know though what if it's what if it's a found footage paranormal activity crossover (laughs) come on if they do a if they do a uh insidious slash paranormal crossover paranormal activity crossover i think i'm done isn't the new paranormal activity supposed to be in 3d i don't know i call bullshit yeah, anyway. who, but who, uh, you know, I think I think it's uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob's trying to talk over here. What? What? What's up? Who Jacob's directed the third one? Because that's not James Wan, right? No, James yeah, Wan. Lee Wanell, the writer. He, yeah, the writer. Um, he handed uh, James Lee, Wan kind of turned it over Lee to the writer. Wanell? Yeah. yeah, Lee Wanell. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, I, what do you guys think of James Wan's stuff in general? Because I think this is where my disconnect with the Insidious films comes from. I don't like him as a director at all. I think he's okay. I, I don't. I don't think he has a style. You know what I mean? I don't think he has like. I don't, I don't feel like he has his own kind of voice as a filmmaker. If that makes any sense. What well, kind of? Is he, he kind yeah, of. Yeah, I think that's wrong. No, I mean Fast and Furious Seven looks just just like Fast and Furious whatever. Or well, Fast and Furious Eight or whatever the hell we're at now. That's also a big studio film that he yeah. just probably took to gain a little bit more in his career. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, you know, but it, there are certain little flourishes, and that's where I think Insidious, the first one, is more of a James Wan film than the others, because of that that red faced demon. Like he's, and uh, what's that puppet movie that he did? Dead, Dead, Dead Silence. Silence. Dead Silence. Like there's those flourishes with that kind of you know the puppets and that kind of design aspect, I guess. But you know, once it gets Insidious two, I don't see a fingerprint of a filmmaker. I don't see his fingerprint as much. Well, the the puppets, that's all his, like, Argento fetish. Like, because he loved Saw. I mean, in Saw, like, he even admitted that, like, the puppet in Saw was directly lifted from um, Deep Red. Yeah. Correct? And then, I mean, I think there's some defined style there. I just don't like what he does because he does that whole industrial funhouse thing <laughs> that I can't really get into, like all the quick cutting and saw. Um, yeah. Some of that carries over to Dead Silence. It's a little more steadily made. But then like Death Sentence oh, is Death like Sentence. all just industrial gr- – now I kind of like Death Sentence because it's grimy and gross. Yeah. But it's uh, – it has that same kind of weird urban um, – uh, very metallic feel mm-hmm. almost. Uh, and then he started making almost classically uh, 
minded ghost pictures with like Insidious and The Conjuring. Like he's make like because Insidious is very much a poltergeist ray. Oh yeah. Like it's him doing his poltergeist, and then The Conjuring is like a throwback to kind of those seventies ghost stories. Almost I don't want to say burnt offerings, but like stuff that's way more in line with you yeah, know something yeah. like The Omen. Um, yeah, but I don't. That's the that's where I say like I don't feel like I see his fingerprints anymore. Like once it, you move past his early films, I don't think know. he wants to. I no, think I, I think, think he just, wants. I think he wants to emulate his passion yeah. and his movies that he loves with each individual movie he makes. Because I mean, like like Jacob was saying, like with Saw, I mean Saw, Dead Silence, Death Sentence, Insidious, and The Conjuring are all totally different movies. Yeah. Like, from a filmmaking aspect. I mean, like, Death Sentence feels like his, like, love for vigilante or something like that. It feels like, um, you know, a new age, like, Bill Lustig film to me. Hmm. Uh, Dead Silence feels like a throwback to old, you know, Italian ghost stories. Uh, especially just how the film shot in general. Um, I, I think Saw is more kind of less you just kind of getting his foot in the door and trying to yeah. see like how far he could go. But I mean, like Insidious, like definitely a callback to kind of the family horror films that existed, you know, everything from Poltergeist to The Gate. And of course, The Conjuring is a th- huge throwback to all the 70s haunted house movies. I, I don't think Furious 7, I, I don't think we can actually count that, number one, because he he took that obviously because that's a huge endeavor and he wanted to accomplish something more than horror films right and also that movie just was fucked from ever since paul walker's death so i don't know if he could actually full force put his fingerprints so-called on that just because that movie was kind of fucked Ever since then, well, those movies are so big and they're kind of a machine. It's, it's, they're, yeah, it's they're a their own machine. So. But I well, honestly just, think it would have been different if Paul Walker never died. Yeah, by well, far. The, movies like the Fast movies are all second unit movies, though. Too <laughs> half of those are shot, you know, by second unit crews doing action set pieces and then found in you know the editing room. Um, so I mean, it's it's tougher. I guess to to I guess fault James Wan for not having his own I guess a tourist fingerprint on something like Fast Seven because I mean like uh, the guy before him that ended up directing for True Detective Justin Lin yeah. um, he doesn't really have no a fingerprint let's all say. those films feel the same yeah <laughs> and they're meant to it's you know, a franchise yeah 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 I mean if if you had a completely different vision with something you might throw off your audience because that's not what they're used to but i think for his horror films and death sentence because i mean death sentence is a horror film in general to begin with but i think all those films he wants to pull what he loves so therefore he's not giving like you said that or status to where it's like oh this is a james wan film i don't necessarily think he wants that other than maybe connecting which he was uh, putting, you know, Billy the Doll somewhere in the films, yeah, uh, to start. But I think other than that, I don't think he wants the movies to be re- relatable. Other than if it's a sequel, you know, like Insidious and Insidious Two. Yeah. No, I'm, well, I'm, I'm fine with him as a director, though. I mean, I, yeah, I, I like I, he's all those directors. I like hearing 
him interviewed about his films. I, I like hearing him talk about his filmmaking process and everything. And, um, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely would check out anything he does. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see The Conjuring 2. I know that they're filming that. And then, uh, is, is he really attached to Aquaman? Yeah. Holy shit. Wow. A little less excited about that, but, you know, but good for him. You know? Well, well his, uh, Death Sentence is a direct adaptation of a Brian Garfield novel, too, right? Because, like, he wrote, Brian Garfield wrote Death Wish, and then Death Sentence was, like, the follow up to, uh, Death Wish. But, you know, obviously, Canon Films made Death Wish into what the Death Wish series became. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Which is. Which was fucking nuts. great. It was great. I yeah. mean, it probably could have used less rape, but it's still pretty great. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I think Brian Garfield definitely had. Um, I mean, everything from you know, like Death Wish to even you know, just his stepfather. There is this really gritty. I don't know, man. It's just. It's a very unique style. I mean, because you you take Death Wish, Death Sentence, and Stepfather. I don't know. They kind of seem from the same. They definitely seem from the same world, right? So, but I, I think that's the charm of James Wan. Uh, I don't know. It seems that it's a it's cool to have you know, a vision to where you can watch a movie and say, you know, that's a George Romero film, that's a Carpenter film, you know, that's a Tarantino film. But I also think it's really cool of when you don't have that, you know, where you can't relate your films. Yeah. I, I think both both are very cool because, one, it seems that the reason why people could tell your movies together is because, like Wes Anderson, yeah, I love Wes Anderson, but when you turn it on, you know what the fuck you're watching. You know when you're watching a John Waters movie, which is cool, but at the same time, I think it's super cool when you don't have that. I don't know. That's just me, though. No, that's cool. I, I agree. I mean, as long and and if they're really good movies, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, if, if his if he's serving the script and the story, that's really all that matters. You know, so. Yeah, totally I mean, fine. I don't, I don't think James Wan's a you know fucking revolutionary, but yeah. I think he's making some pretty kick-ass movies. He's, he's no from Eli the time Roth. that he's been, you know, you know, what I'm saying guys, you need to calm down. <laughs> so I'm just hoping that he does his word and fucking does this Mortal Kombat thing he's taking on. So because I want to see another goofy fucking Mortal Kombat movie is what I want. Totally, I don't ever but, want to watch any of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, then fi- sorry, finally, we, we got off track here. Um, well, I, just to go back to Insidious, because I've always, um, I just real quick, this is my input on Insidious, and this is the reason why I like it so much. Because when the first one came out, it kind of got half and half. Um, I guess more hate than love. Hmm. But look at it as if the ghosts and goblins and demons and everything from the further are never, ever there for the boy. They're using him as bait in order to get Josh to remember everything, to become possessed. That's all they're there for. And if you look at the movie from that aspect, 
it kind of makes a lot more sense than it does because it there is these batshit crazy things where fucking he doesn't go home when his family's being terrorized. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you look at it the aspect of like he was made to forget so by all means he does not believe that there is fucking ghosts at his house. It'd be like if your wife called you and said, "Hey, there's a huge giant monster in our driveway. The first thing you're going to do is be like, no, you're fucking stupid. That's not true. But he's made to believe like he's, you know, hypnotized and and, you know, made to forget all those memories. So if you look at it more as like a ransom, like they're kidnapping him in order to for him to remember the movie's a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first and second one. And I think. Even though they don't say it in the second one, that's kind of what they allude to even more is that they're basically kidnapping the kid in order for him to remember. Yeah. Because that's ultimately how they're going to win. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I think they're solid. I think one and two were, <laughs> were great together. Um, and I was wondering when I finished watching the first one, I was like, man, how are they going to make a second one? How are they going to top that? Because it just – it goes from Haunted House flick with some really – great scares to just we're jumping back into insidious talk i just, just wanted to say that sean to just batshit craziness with the, the further stuff and i the more batshit i got the more i i, I love these flicks so um anyway I want what else you be, got i want there to be an insidious four no and i want to figure out what happened nope. no at the end of two the fucking that needs to be explained Fireface Man's back. Go ahead. Next. <laughs> uh, and then um, I, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think we're going to be uh, having some of the guys involved with it on. But uh, Deathgasm is on VOD. Rent that shit or buy that shit. It's only like, like nine ninety nine to buy it uh, and watch it. It's awesome. We'll get it. We'll, we'll get it more later. I think. Deathgasm. But it's it's. It's great. It was like it was like everything I kind of wanted and was expecting, and more. Yeah, I mean it's it's. I mean it's a heavy metal horror film with fucking demons and metal. I mean, (laughs) it's perfect. Yep. Yep. If you want that sort of thing, it was exactly what I wanted at the time I watched it. So, good for you, Sean. Good for you. That was it, Brad. What you got? Nothing. Let's move on to etiquette picture. (laughs) No, I literally don't have anything. Nice. Okay. I've been busy and sick, so. Yep. Um, I do need to say you've uh, you you and uh, Josh Obershaw have been uh, submitting stuff on the site, and uh, I got to say, you know, I think it's really been adding a lot to the website over at the. I had a lot of people um, contact me about the exploitation starter kit, nice. so I was very very happy with that, um, and. Then, uh, the heavy metal horror thing posted today, which I like heavy metal horror. So if you like Deathgasm, check out the heavy metal horror list because there's a bunch of doozies in there. Yep, it's going great. Um, I think tomorrow we'll post another thing from Josh uh, Obershaw. So I'm excited about that, and I gave him an assignment. So uh, you know, the more con- the more content on our site, the better. And uh, I'm very happy with what's what's uh, been posted. So everyone, check it out. I haven't contributed contributed worth shit. Yeah. So someday I'll write something. It's like usual. <laughs> but uh, head over to thescreamcast.com and check those out. That's all I got to say about that. Moving along, uh, yes, we're. Um, it's kind of when you when you mentioned that we should uh, talk about some of these uh, etiquette pictures movies. Um, I figured, you know, oh wait, we're in, you know we're in October and everyone's covering horror movies, so why would we do that? But I think it's almost the perfect time 
uh, to cover these because everyone's watching horror movies. Everyone's into the, into the October thing. Uh, every now and then I need a little break from the horror movies. So, uh, so this was fun to kind of j- jump into and talk about them. But, uh, before we jump into the two etiquette pictures, uh, flicks, let's talk briefly, um, about Crypt of the Living Dead. Now this yeah. was released with, as uh, House of the Living Dead? Another film? Yeah, House of the Living Dead. This is the first, this is a, a, well, not joint. I mean, it's still Vinegar Syndrome. This is their first exploitation TV release. Yeah, I um, wanted to ask you about that too. Um, are they, because I noticed another one, which movie is this? Uh, Nightmare Weekend has the, uh, explo- yeah. the exploitation TV. Are they no, doing they that still- only for certain titles? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how they're picking them. I mean, yeah. obviously they're they're porno. I think it's to get. I think the vinegar syndrome label is going to be more geared to uh, you know sexploitation, okay. hardcore stuff. Etiquette pictures going to be kind of more maybe artsy fartsy. The black exploitation films and then exploitation TV is going to be more or less their like horror. Okay, and so like that's that's kind of vibe I'm getting, and that's how it's playing out so far. So cool. I might be right. Um, but it's up to them. I mean, they can do whatever the fuck they want. Just as long as the movies are released. I don't give a shit what label they're on. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, uh, Hannah, Queen of the Vampires, yeah. a.k.a. Crypt Living Dead. Um, great scan. Yeah, it, it looks, looks good. It looks amazing. <laughs> it looks really good. Um, it's surprising. <laughs> like, But this, that's what I really love about Vinegar Syndrome is they really just it, to me unless there's a hardcore fan of crypto living dead please contact me and let me know what you actually liked about the movie <laughs> but i don't know it's just i i have mad respect when i watch things like this is because who the fuck would release this maybe other than code red or vinegar syndrome you know and it's just they really take the time in a fucking 2k transfer of you know the 35 millimeter negative to this movie that's not it has moments, mm-hmm. but ultimately is kind of boring for the most part. Yeah. Um, a lot of wandering around. Jacob, and just Jacob, what you what do you think? Um, it's yep. it's See, not good. Go. It's <laughs> not very good, but I kind of see if you were a hardcore. Uh, Euro horror kind of aficionado, mm-hmm. how that yeah. might fit into something that you like. Like if you like things like um, the just kind of just Franco's less pervier transmissions, let's say, or Which is exactly why I probably don't like it. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely sexploitation without the sex. Um, you know, it hints at being almost like a low rent uh, pervy you know, sub, uh, hammer movie, mm-hmm. but really just kind of feels like a Turkish version of a dress, Jess Franco film because it's a Spanish <laughs> movie, but it was shot in Turkey and it has this really ruddy rundown feel to it. Um, it meanders for a good portion of, but I mean, at least it's only like what, 80 minutes yeah, or whatever. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's very uh, short, but I mean, there's just not a whole lot there. I couldn't even, again, tell you what it's truly about other than, like, a guy's – is it his father dies? Yeah. And he returns to an island where, like, this – They come across a, a, a burial ground with vampires. A vampire. A vampire. Sorry. 
And she's able to like psychically hypnotize people into doing whatever she wants. And it's usually really boring stuff. Yeah, she turns into a wolf. She doesn't make them do anything cool. Yeah, and yeah, it's the. Ugh. There's like a yeah, love it, triangle there or something with the the brother and the sister and the the guy. Some stuff like yeah, that. It's just that they really <laughs> I don't know. It it feels it honestly feels like there is probably like being that this was made in Turkey, maybe some definitely um just kind of tr- lost in translation mm-hmm. as well. That that's kind of what it feels like. Um so I don't know. It's just really tough because it feels like there wants to be something there. It's just that we don't, we don't ever get that at all. What is happening? <laughs> what is that noise? Are you un, are you unwrapping something? It was a bread bag. Oh. <laughs> just eating bread. Are you eating Doritos or? No. I was getting hungry. Are you going to tell us what it is at least? Sorry, I was walking. <laughs> I was walking away while we're talking. This is exactly oh. <laughs> how interesting Crypto Living Dead exactly. is, is that and the guest gets up and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's I appreciate that Vinegar Syndrome obviously took the time to to restore this and um, and everything. This is this is my second time watching it, unfortunately. Um, but like I was, t- I was telling uh, Jacob at some point, like this is something that I watched when I was really young, and you know, it's like, you know, when you're young, you just base everything off of you know cover art or titles. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you know, Crypt the Living Dead, yeah, it's gonna be fucking zombies everywhere, and there's no zombies, there's hardly any horror, and like 15 minutes into it, I was probably masturbating or something. <laughs> You know, so I t- totally fucking forgot about it. it. It's the same thing. Like, this movie's good. It's another Vinegar Syndrome uh, title. Hopefully they released it on Blu-ray. But I remember, like, picking up the, you know, the box to I Dismember Mama. And I'm like, man, they're going to be, like, chopping her up and stuff and making her eat in her own, like, fucking arms. No. <laughs> it's nothing like that. But, you know, it, it, it's just a sort of you, you appreciate this type of uh, – this type of work. And then we also have House Living Dead. Did you guys check that out? I I didn't. After this, I was like, ah, I don't know. Is it better? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's, it, it, but let's just say it's a perfect double feature. <laughs> Is House it, Living Dead as, as uh, restored as Crypt Living Dead? Or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, okay. it, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely a little bit more messed up. That's the reason why. I mean... But like the print, the negative isn't that, isn't that in in very good condition. Let's yeah. just put it that way. So, um, but this was this was Curse of the Dead, I think. Like Diamond Video Releasing or whatever um, released this back in the day. It is it, the movie's just. It, I get it's more entertaining because a lot of crazier things happen, like. Crypto Living Dead is just there's just a lot of drawn out things. You know, one thing I noticed is that whenever uh, what's the fucking guy's name? Andrew Pine, whatever his name is. I, I don't know his name in the movie, but he's like he goes into the crypt and then he's like writing on his little clipboard of the tools he needs 
but it's like three minutes of him discussing what he needs to hoist this, you know, cemetery, uh, you know, fucking tombstone off the ground. Talks about attaching the pulley to the top of the uh, of the ceiling. And then it goes showing them doing it without any dialogue at all. And it's like you're watching like a home improvement channel for a second. His name is Chris Bolton. Ugh, Chris Bolton, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, in, in that sense, it really drags and is really boring, at least with House of the Living Dead. It's a little bit more batshit and a little bit more entertaining, but it is really dumb. Okay. So, but anyways. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame because I was, I was, I was, I mean, there's an, a, a great poster of like this half woman, half wolf coming out of a crypt, you know, uh, the the poster is really great, and uh, I was I was really hoping for at least some batshit crazy goofiness. No, and and it, it doesn't really happen it, at all. Like the opening's really great with like the when the guy, it must be this guy's father, right? He's checking out the crypt or whatever, and like you know, like the the set is really cool. Like wherever they're at, you know, I was like, oh, here we go. The kind of beautiful set feels too, like, like a hammer horror type thing, you know. But uh, it definitely does not not anywhere close to any sort of ha- hammer horror. No, I think I think that's a good explanation. It's like Hammer and Jess Franco got together, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then they both were fired, <laughs> and then the script burned to smithereens, and then they just decided to keep filming the movie. They stretched out like the first ten <laughs> pages into like a full feature length. Ugh. but anyways, <laughs> anyways, if you want to watch it, it's on Exploitation TV, and Blu-ray is probably pretty cheap if you like that Euro trash stuff. So there you go. Anyways. Moving along into the uh, etiquette picture stuff. James B. Harris. Oh, gosh. Um, now, I I wasn't... We're going to be talking to some... Oh, God, here we go. And... You just want me to start talking since you didn't watch well, it? Well, you know, I'm covering the, my bases here. I'm not going to pretend that I freaking watched it. But um, I, I wanted to watch it. It was all my agenda to watch over the weekend. And I had sat down to watch this and it was just me and my three-year-old hanging out and he's playing with his trains it's I get a ten great movie to film. watch the kid. Well, he's playing with his trains over in the corner I'm sitting there at the computer watching the, watching the flick well Solomon uh, and King's running the train right well anyway uh, I look up and he has his pants down with diarrhea just running on his legs <laughs> so I had to deal with that clean the carpets and then my wife came home and uh, with the other kids and I was not able to finish this film but I really loved what I saw the first 10 minutes and what I read about. And Brad, I'm really interested in hearing uh, what you think about Some Call of Loving because I really want to finish this film. Wait, well, before we go any further, Sean, did you, did you see your son shit on the floor? He pulled out his pull-up, I guess, as he was shitting uh, or something and had more, I don't know. He Basically, what he did was... I. My, the doctor said my son needs a little more. My middle child needs some more fiber, so I bought these fiber wafers. Oh my god! What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Jesus my, Christ! My, my daughter fiber left, to a little child. My, they shit everywhere. My already. daughter left the left the fiber wafers uh, within reach of the three year old. She was looking at it or something, and he grabbed it and he thought it was candy. This was last. That's night. a Kirby enthusiasm <laughs> show. An episode, and thus so, he had explosive diarrhea all over the floor. Yes, all day long. It's been an ongoing thing, but I think he's wow. better now. 
So that's amazing, dear <laughs> Jesus. So, all right. <laughs> wow, I bet your house smells amazing. I have some pretty good carpet cleaner stuff. Luckily, most of it got into the uh, pull up and his pajama pants that he was wearing, and just a few trickles on the carpet. But it was enough to warrant a, uh, you know, hazmat situation. Oh. Wow. Cool. Wow. I'm so glad I don't have children. <laughs> yeah. So those of you thinking about having kids, just uh, think about that a little bit more. Um, no. Uh, okay. So some call it lovin', um, also known as Sleeping Beauty, is uh, directed by James B. Harris. But first we get in, before we get in the movie, let's talk about James B. Harris for a second. Um, Jacob, you're a fan of James B. Harris, I know, because we kind of had this conversation already. I am a uh, massive fan of James B. Harris. I find him to be one of the more interesting, um, almost straight-up exploitation filmmakers uh, that kind of ever worked. And, I mean, his whole history is kind of incredible where you stretch, you know, he was Stanley Kubrick's, like, early producing partner. Yeah, uh, yeah for The Killing and, like, Paz of Glory and stuff. Wow. Paz of Glory and Lolita, too. Yeah, Correct. Lolita, yeah. Um, they they, talk, they talk about that in the interview with him, actually. Uh, see, I, didn't, I didn't have time to watch the interview. But, yeah, he did basically Killing Paz of Glory and Lolita with Kubrick. Um, you know, produced another movie in between, uh, you know, Lolita and then his uh, directorial debut called the Bedford incident, I Bedford believe. Incident. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. and then made some call it loving and man, some call it loving is, uh, I think it's wonderful, but it's, it's so disconnected from, the only other three films that he did after that, which he did two movies with James Woods, Fast Walking, which is like this great character piece about a prison guard um, with basically all these eccentric character actors in it. On top of you know James Woods, there's also um, Susan Tyrell's in the film, Timothy Carey, and one of his uh, later very weird roles, as if there was ever a normal Timothy Carey role. Um, you know, you have M. Emmett Walsh, but that is that's a hell of a weird kind of drama comedy hybrid. But it's all this really, really interesting kind of character work and offbeat character work. But then he made Cop with James yeah. Woods, which Cop is one of the better uh, police films ever made. Like it's so good. And it's probably my favorite James Elroy adaptation. Like he captures that uh, innate sleaziness that Elroy so like effortlessly kind of conveys via his writing, and also Cop has the greatest. Fi- I, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Might have the greatest final line in, in any film ever when he just lets loose those last three lines, and you're like, "Oh shit!" And then it just cuts to black, and you're like, "This is the greatest movie I've ever seen." Uh, yeah, no, Cop Cop is definitely his – I personally, other than Boiling Point, I mean – because, I mean, the guy's only done like five movies. But with just those five, but with Cop, just the plot 
of cop and just James Woods, like just his character, how it begins to the point of what two hours later, how it ends just his dude, just like how crazy he can get without overdoing it. Like it's just, you kind of get goosebumps just when you're watching the film, just how he reacts to, you know, being held back to where he is just about to fucking break. So no, totally. But then as you just mentioned, the boiling point, which is another really, really great, um, cop film. I don't think it's as good as cop, but it's really, really solid. And probably one of, uh, Wesley Snipes better dramatic roles to where we really get a, a solid performance out of Wesley Snipes. And then Dennis Hopper, as uh, Red Diamond, this kind of eternal con man, uh, kind of s- trying to slither his way through like one last uh, big score almost. It's definitely like a-, a last big score to save his own life in this case. Um, he's really, really amazing. And then you have a super young Vigo Mortensen just playing a straight up sociopath in that movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But that is uh, really, really cool. But again, peppered with these these amazing character actors as you have guys like Jonathan Banks in it, uh, Tony Lobianco's in it, Seymour Cassell uh, from all of those old, jo- old John Cassavetes films. Like it's a really, really wonderful movie. Um, but again, Cops is masterpiece. Yeah. But, uh, but then I he think has some kind of- call it loving. But it, this is kind of where I was going to go with that. I think some call it loving, while stylistically uh, detached from kind of his his cop noir stuff that he did later, um, kind of starts his obsession is because even his cop movies are are very adult cop films and how they deal with uh, male female relationships yeah. that romantic and otherwise. Um, I think some call it Lovin is almost like the jumping off point for that because very some call it Lovin is very uh, as we'll kind of get into is very much a dream logic take on the ethics of being in a relationship and what it means to essentially love another person of the you know at all and it's I think it's really special but I could also understand why people don't like it. Yeah, I mean with with this it it felt. You know, even though it's based on a, a short story, to me it feels like there's something. You know, he didn't get into it in the interview, which I was hoping he would because I had some questions. Is if it's this is kind of more or less a personal experience of, you know, take away kind of the two women that Salman's King character lives with, and kind of take away kind of the nymphomaniac. Uh, type side or kind of the oversexed thing and just mostly focus on one guy who wants a girl but ultimately when he achieves that you it's just not all what it what you thought it would be you know and i don't know for me personally it feels like that like i can i can i can remember doing that of like you know there was a girl that was, you know, had a boyfriend or something like that. And, you know, we were like, man, like, you really like this girl. And, but she's taken, and this is the kind of the same thing where she's sleeping. 
And eventually you get to that point where you have that option to take it and you do, mm-hmm. and then you kind of regret it. And you, and you just feel like you wanted something that you couldn't have, but once you have it, you don't want it anymore. And that, not meaning that, you know, the girl's shitty or something. It's just that, just that's a, a, a slice on life in general. And it, and it felt like maybe that's just kind of a personal experience as well. You know, maybe for, for Harris, uh, to emulate this on, on screen. And that, that's kind of what it felt like to me. Well, it's very much a movie about male ownership. Um, right. Because a very, in a very literal sense, because I mean, to kind of set it up for the people, I guess, listening, who yeah, haven't seen we it, should, because it probably, this is very underseen. So it, is that it, it's very much, it's a movie about a, a young woman who is a sideshow attraction, a sleeping beauty who, um, these guys essentially who poses doctors uh, drug her and keep her under and have kept her under for eight years at this point. Yeah, um, something like that. And very much have like a, a almost like a carnival, you know, fun house game to where they invite men from the audience to come in and kiss her to see if she'll, she'll wake the sleeping beauty that she is and they pay a dollar per kiss. Um, and Zalman King's character comes in and – very much purchases, like literally purchases her for $20,000, brings her to this giant opulent mansion that he he lives in, um, you know, with these two women who dress up as nuns and dance. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, uh, nurses her basically back to consciousness and even goes through this very odd and dreamy uh, mock courtship with her all the way up to, you know, sex and marriage and everything. Um, But it very much to what Brad was saying is about um, how uh, almost the male psyche very much um, romanticizes the idea of like the perfect partner, the perfect white mate or the perfect woman. Yeah. And then the experience, when the experience doesn't measure up, it's very much how they view that relationship or even that idealized version of it doesn't live up to that is disposable. And it, but it's all packaged which within this acidic daydream that is indebted to like, Jess Franco and Radley Metzger and all of these sexploitation directors, but it's directed like a Kubrick movie. I mean, it's it's shot by what Mario Tossi, who shot Carrie, yeah. frogs. Um, yeah, you shot frogs, <laughs> Killing Kind with John Savage. Um, but he, you know, he did shoot Carrie. He did shoot the Stuntman, which is an extraordinary looking motion picture. He also shot uh, Sybil, too. Um, so, I mean, he's a, he's a very, very great cinematographer when he's on and he is very much bringing that gauzy daydream vibe that he did to Carrie to where like you just fall into this person's kind of hazy reverie more than anything. Yeah. You, you feel, you get into the dreamlike sequence with, with Zalman King because I mean, watching this for the first time. You know, this is a film that I've never seen before. When he's at the carnival, I don't know. It's like, yes, purchase her. Like, you know, you want him because you're thinking it's almost like you're in the same state of mind he is. Like he's going Mm -hmm. to save, save this girl in a sense. And he's going to basically have this 
beautiful woman woman at his disposal disposal and kind of make up any story that he wants and kind of create this woman that he wants but once it happens he realizes he can't do that so it's also kind of a slap in the face to males it feels like at the same time you know is at one point it does feel kind of misogynistic in a way but at the same time it's like you know bro you're not going to get everything that you dreamed of with it, with this thing like you know you're in a fucking dreamlike state like already he lives in this world that is kind of nutty living in this like huge mans- mansion with these two these two women and he just he just wants more and more and more and he just doesn't get it and well, so the one woman plays almost like a a very pygmalion role with the sleeping beauty and dressing her up and teaching her how to be a lady um but it also feels uh to kind of tie it back to Stanley Kubrick is that it has that jazzy uh that jazzy <laughs> kind of daydream feel of eyes wide shut is that yeah. Is that you could see how maybe Kubrick looked to this movie too, or at least they were working together so closely that it might have bled through to Kubrick through osmosis um, or creative osmosis in a way in that like – because Eyes Wide Shut kind of treads very, very um, close thematic ground in following this guy basically through this weird sexual adventure that essentially at first – is his escape from his own marriage only to return to his own marriage by the yeah. end? Um, you know, and, and it's very much again dealing with the male uh, idealizing of marriage and what sex inside of marriage means. Like you could watch these two back to back and just you'd have a field day thematically. <laughs> yeah, it, this is a weird movie to compare it to, but this is what I was seeing. Were you getting some vibes of Love Story, Arthur Heller's Love Story with Ryan O'Neill? Fuck it all. I never want to think about that movie again, so no. I hate Love Story <laughs> so much. Like, I know we don't, don't watch movies or whatever, but, like, Love Story is one of the worst films I've ever sat through. Oh, really? I hate it. Oh. I wrote about it um, – I actually wrote about when we did Blockbuster Month at BMD. I had never seen it before this year, actually. And I wrote about it on the site because we were doing the top grossing movies of each respective year. And I did Love Story. I was like, holy fucking shit. People went and saw it. You can understand contextually and like from a historical standpoint, just in in terms of like the post-Vietnam War and everything and like how we needed a very happy kind of almost sappy film. And you you understand why Americans flocked to it at that point in our history. But looking back at it, I bet there's a lot of people who are like, man, I – I wish I could take that ticket back. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I personally love Love Story. Get out. Stop. I'm I'm wanting to – I'll read that article. I missed that from you. So I'll definitely be reading that. I don't know. I got that kind of vibe because of – the reason why I like Love Story is kind of the same reason why I I like some call it loving is that they're both kind of dreamlike states. Is that something is there that's not really there, and I think that's why I like Love Story is because it is kind of a slap in the face. Hmm? It's not. It's not all hyped up what it's supposed to be. Well, 
that's just me though. I mean, I, it's, it's a, it's a weird, I, I, that's why I said it's a weird, it's a weird comparison, but I think the meaning of love story is not getting what you want and dream about is that there is heartbreak, there's hardships, there's fucking shit that happens. And I think that's kind of the same thing in some call it loving is that you want this perfect thing, but there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. It's that people want everything to fall in. Like just the tagline to the fucking movie. And one of the lines is, you know, love is for never having to say you're sorry. Like that's not true. It's one of the dumbest things ever. The whole point of relationships is that building blocks. And, you know, that's one thing that it feels that both movies just try to skip. They want to skip the working part and just have what they dream about and want, like, what you sit when you're single and you sit in what you, like, formulate in your head as the perfect mate. But no work goes into building that and getting to that point you just want to meet somebody and immediately fucking fireworks go off which it does but then it's like oh something happens so what the fuck do we do do we work through it or do i just end up abandoning it like in you know something like not love story but in some call call it love and like do you really want to work towards that i don't know if that makes any sense at all but that's kind of like the vibe that i get from both of those films completely different on different levels but it just shows this kind of dreamlike state for people that just want things to fall in their lap. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do know that love story is a piece of shit, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, what can you what can you say about a twenty five year old girl who died, Brad? Really, what uh, can you say that she was brilliant? Well, dude, the movie's made nineteen seventy. <laughs> I, I think we're good. Um. <sighs> But back to some call it loving. I, I I think I think it's a great character piece on on somebody that could buy, you know, have anything they want with the money, and you know, a good looking guy is what he's supposed to be. Is Almond King's kind of a goofball to me. Um, ever since I saw Blue Sunshine, he's fucking a nutbag. Also in like Red Shoe Diaries and shit. I used to watch on like Skinamax or whatever. He but, has such an odd screen presence. He does because he's like semi-romantic but semi-perverted at the same time. Like he could be the guy that rapes you, <laughs> but he'll take you out for dinner first and show you a really good time. <laughs> oh, what? <Jesus. laughs> he definitely he definitely has the the air of a guy who would like without being invited masturbate in front of you. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's the guy that, you know, you're having a conversation with the car and he just whips it out. That's <laughs> Yeah. But anyways, I totally got <laughs> disconnected with that whole Zalman King thing. But I mean, just for a guy who could have anything he wants if he can because of his his wealth, but it's like he doesn't want to work for it. And I think it's just a good view on relationships in general in this movie. I think it's hidden in there. And that's the reason why I think it would be cool to have a conversation with James B. Harris to see if it's kind of a personal experience that he had. Maybe. Um, but what about the dancing nuns? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what are they coming to play? I think that's, again, that Kubrick, like, let's, let's do something. I mean, 
if he didn't have the dancing nuns, I mean, if he didn't have a lot of things, I mean, if they weren't basically drugging her, it, it, it is the movie is kind of a whole like dreamlike sequence and, you know, kind of out there. So I think it, I think it's fitting for the most part. I mean, I don't know if that's intentional or if it's just everybody was on drugs during the movie. That could be it, too. But I don't know. I think it's, it's I think it's just that fantasy level with the dancing nuns because uh, he lives in a fantasy world. Well, I was, I was trying to see what it represented, I mean, at least to me, because it's a very much, it's a movie that's very much uh, kind of drenched in symbolism. And to me, the, I wondered if the dancing nuns were supposed to be um, how he still kept religion in his house, but distanced himself from it by always watching it as almost like another art form or another thing that he could collect and watch. Um which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, there was something else too. Oh, what the fuck? Why is Richard Pryor in this movie? Like, it's so weird that Richard Pryor plays. It's kind of awesome because Richard Pryor's. It seems like he's riffing on that uh, kind of junky um, archetype that he would perfect on stage with his stand-up stuff because he's very much playing like a strung out. Uh, wino character that also happens to be our main character, Zalman King's character, uh, his best friend. Um, so it's a nut, but it's, it's again another uh, layer of kind of uh, almost clashing weirdness. How, how big is Richard Pryor's role in this film? Uh, It's a, it's a decent size. Like he's got a few scenes. Like he's not a huge, you know, supporting cast member. But when member, he's on the like, screen, he's very noticeable. I mean, yeah, he's uh, Richard fucking Pryor. <laughs> yeah, he's dishing it out too. Yeah, especially in the sequence of him right in the heart in the bathroom and stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's really turning it he's out. Chain smoking. He's hanging out at a urinal at one point. Like it's it's very much Richard Pryor doing the the junkie thing, and it's it's intense. Um, it, it might be the only thing, even though I enjoy it, it might be the only part of the movie that I can't place aesthetically or thematically. It's it's very out of like when it very first happens, it really catches you off guard Yeah, because it doesn't, it doesn't fit the rest of the movie at all. And it just kind of comes out of nowhere and you get into kind of a main, not a main story, but you really dig deep down with his character and where he's coming from because it's, you know, he's like, is he partially, you know, have retardation going on as well as he's a junkie because like something's not right upstairs. He's just not drawing a heart and doing these paintings because he's a junkie. Well, he's, he's, he seems like a street person. Almost. Yeah. So there's a little bit more to it. Like he's just not all there. I mean, some bad shit happened to this guy. So it, it catches you off guard because it, you think that this is what it's going to be about for a second. Like this is going to be kind of the co-star and he's going to take him under his wing, but he just kind of shows up every once in a while. Yeah. Huh. It's very strange. It's a strange creative decision. Yeah. So I don't know. But it's definitely, things- it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a movie. It really is. Like it's, it's very bizarre. It's um, like it definitely, you know, especially after, you know, 
in the interview, James B. Harris talks about, you know, Kubrick and working with him, you kind of really see that rub off. Like he almost had something to prove. It seems, you know, working with somebody like Kubrick, that he's going to kind of do his own thing. So that definitely rubs off in the filmmaking aspect. And I think it's just, I think it's just a good take on, you know, love in general and relationships. Like it's pretty out there, but I think it's all there for the most part. It's very distorted, but it's there. Okay. Huh. Hey, how recent is that, uh, uh, James Harris interview? Oh, and all this stuff's new. They yeah, all, I, he's, he's about like, he's got in his late 80s by now, right? Yeah, they do. I mean, he's pretty out, he's pretty up there, man. Um, they also do, uh, interview with the cinematographer too, which is pretty cool. Mario. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of, watch Blue Sunshine, that's about, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's definitely Zalman's King's best performance. Blue Sunshine is? Yes, by far. Okay. Um, let me think. Yeah, probably. Right? I mean, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't really think. Okay, let's put it this way. Like, what Zalman King probably re- is like in real life <laughs> is very close to that. Is Jerry Zipkin from Blue Sunshine? <laughs> yeah, even his name. Even his <laughs> name. You know, another another weird, you know, would be good as kind of a double feature is this in Two Moon Junction. Ah, uh, that's a weird one. Yeah, I like Injunction, but it's it's a strange film, dude. But that's what I'm saying. The same thing compared to like this, or maybe like Wild Orchid, right? Kind of the same thing. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know if Two Moon Junction or any really anything Zalman King did by himself as like a director or writer really is working on the same level of art. I'm saying for character wise. Character-wise, uh, not not filmmaking. I think for a Zalm, I was saying for a Zalman King double feature. Isn't Burl <laughs> Ives in Two Moon Junction? <laughs> I, don't I-, remember. I don't remember, but that's that'd be hilarious if he is. I, I'm pretty sure he was. Oh uh, man, Burl Ives is the man. Burl Ives is the is the snowman yeah, voice. Burl, Burl Ives is the Richard Pryor of Two Moon Junction. <laughs> <clears throat> That's a good one, though. But Sherilyn Finn is in it too, so and she's super cute. You definitely masturbated to that movie. There's yes. no way. oh, by far, dude. That movie's hot and heavy. Well, have you ever I've seen um uh shit? What is the fucking After Dark, My Sweet? Yes, I've seen, dude. <laughs> How many times Dude. do you masturbate? Are we just going to start rating movies by how many times <laughs> Brad masturbates to them? I think so. I mean, but Brad, seriously. I, 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 uh, I think your next list is, uh, <clears throat> your next, next topic has arrived. Yep. Movies Top 10 I've movies mastur- that you masturbated to. But dude, fucking <laughs> After Dark My Sweet is fucking good though. And it's sexy. 
Yeah. Very nice. I think we can move on. I think we're moving <laughs> on. Let's I'm getting, I'm getting a little sweaty. <laughs> Let's right, move wait, on. Brad, what do you think about Tracy Lords? <laughs> oh, dude, don't even get me started. I just fucking wrote a little thing about uh Shock 'em Dead. Dude, fucking Tracy Lords is a sh- shit. What do you think about? I missed Shock 'em Dead. It just actually played uh the Ritz here in Austin as part of they were doing um Shred Shred Timber for yeah. Tuesday, and it was all like horror metal themed. Uh, yeah, that's where I want to go see Trick or Treat. Yeah, that's right. You saw Trick or Treat during um, Fantastic, Fantastic Fest. Fest, but they did Shock 'em Dead too. And th- that was the one trailer where I just watched and I was like, I don't know about this movie. It, it's, it's weird. It's like if an amateur John Waters made a heavy metal movie. Which is in itself quite strange because John Waters movies, which was another yeah. – that was the other Waters Wednesdays was weird Wednesdays for the last uh, month for Draft House, which was fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Why are you mentioning Tracy Lords? I mean you want to talk about Tracy Lords for a second? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I just, I, I just wanted to throw it out there to see if I could actually hear your erection. Did you hear I it? Did. I did hear it. It, it groaned. <laughs> I have um, I have jeans on, so it's kind of easy to hear. It's yeah, like that so. weird that weird scraping sound, like when you're in church and you rub against the pew in front of you. I've never been in church. Sorry. <laughs> That's fair. You ever see Raw Nerve with Tracy Lords? David Pryor I directed have, it. I have seen Raw Nerve. Yeah, I like that one quite a bit. I'm sure you do. Anyway, we, we should right. move on. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on to the 1971 do- uh, documentary? No, the it's American definitely Dreamer a documentary, yeah. With uh, uh, starring Dennis Hopper. This is, <clears throat> I just right now flat out say this is like literally one of my favorite things I've ever seen. It is pretty damn incredible. Um, he, he has a documentary crew following him around as he's, I think, in the editing of he's in the editing of his last film, movie. the last movie. And I was trying to figure out, like, is this is this really Dennis Hopper? Is he putting on a character? Is he is he doing a you know I am is it what, what was that with the is it, I am still here with uh, what's his uh, what's his face? Walking Phoenix. Phoenix. Walking Phoenix. I was like, did Walking Phoenix kind of? Was he inspired by the American Dreamer? No, um, this is fucking Dennis Hopper. Yeah, this is how Dennis like. Yeah, because I've read it, I've read a couple different things, but um, well, reading is one thing. Following Dennis Hopper and reading his book and just knowing like how he is in life. Okay, like yes, this is definitely Dennis Hopper in his truest form. The reason why Dennis Hopper can play the crazy roles is because he is a little bit out there. He's, He's a very spiritual person. He's very, like, I mean, go back to kind of the history of Dennis Hopper when he very first started. I mean, he he idolized James Dean. He's That's one of the very first actors he got to work with. I mean, uh, he fucking knew Elvis Presley personally. 
And this is all before Easy Rider as well. Mm-hmm. He became good friends with Vincent Price. Vincent Price, and you know, inspired and encouraged him to do more like theater. You know, so you have um, you know all these like aspects and all these people that he met before Easy Rider. You know, because I mean, he was doing movies. You know, in, in the early in the early sixties, late late fifties. Yeah. You know, as kind of a walk on actor, had had some, and plus working one on one with uh, you know uh, John Wayne. Yeah. You know, so he met all these incredible people that in, influenced him. So when he had had that chance to do Easy Rider, and I think this is kind of where it things sparked, is that you have a movie Easy Rider that is one of the more well-known films at that time. I, I mean, I think it's still pretty well-known. But, you know, you have, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper do this film that becomes huge and has always kind of been that. But let's just go back to, like, the late 60s when when this came out and it, you know, was blowing up at the box office. You know, everybody, everybody loved it. It won awards. But... When it comes down to it, when the first thing you mention, Easy Rider, you, you think Peter Fonda and you think um, – shit, what, uh, Jack Nicholson. I don't think Dennis Hopper comes to mind at first. And being that he is – you know, he wrote it with Peter Fonda. He was the director. The, the fame kind of didn't go towards um, – uh, Dennis Hopper, and I think that's where a lot of this sparked, and I think that's why the documentary is essential for the last movie, is because I think Dennis Hopper really, really had something to live up to, and he wanted, he, I think he saw the fame that he he gained, but at the same time, Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson were the first things that were brought up when Easy Rider. Even though Dennis Hopper's in the film, you know, he wrote and he directed it, all the kind of the fame went to those two actors, and I think he had something to prove to to uh, you know other filmmakers, to uh, the, the general public, to his friends. He really wanted to make something concrete and substantial to really show he's a director. So I think that's a lot of pressure mm. for for a person, and I'm glad that this was made because I think that's kind of where that all stems from is that. You know, I think he kind of lost himself with, you know, maybe alcohol and drugs trying to live up to this and, um, you know, succeeding, of course. But, uh, you know, I mean, if you've seen the last movie, <laughs> this documentary and watch it, if you watch this documentary and then you watch the movie or vice versa, like you could totally see some shit going on. I mean, because yeah. it truly, last movie is truly experimental, and I think that's kind of what he wanted to do. He wanted to make something completely different. So I don't think this is an act. This is just him well, gaining gaining that success, living that success, yeah. and then wanting to accomplish more and live up to what I mean. It's his fucking directorial debut, you know, making something such such as substantial as easy up to that, I think that kind of really got to him. Yeah. And I think this documentary truly shows that side of of just filmmaking in general and, and, and trying to be better and do better yeah. at the same, you know, that's well, just that's just me. Well, I mean, what uh, Lawrence Schiller was the one who um, basically 
was following him around, and, and I believe in, in an interview he said that that uh, Hopper always knew that he was being filmed, so he did kind of play to the camera a little bit. He was always aware, um, so he didn't. He I, I think Schiller isn't even sure if he got the true Dennis Hopper like he was intending to get, but um, but like he said, like it could. I mean. He looks like he's on some shit. So, well, so, I mean, but it, I mean, that, that was a common. You know, it's not like this movie. You know, was made two years ago. Well, no, I think everyone this is, was this, on, on. This is in the seventies, where yeah. you know, drugs were a lot more you know pure and weren't fucking tampered with and you know fucking laced with shit. It was more or less natural, so there wasn't any you know hardcore you know uh, you know you know people fucking dying on the side of the road fuck i mean there was that but it wasn't as you know common as it is fucking binging and shit like that and you know people going out and fucking driving cars and dying you know it was more or less let's fucking do drugs and sit around together and fucking talk about movies and music yeah you know uh you know as well, you can see they are all fucking sitting in a circle swaying at one point in this movie it, it's also worth noting that this was the time of manson too mm. It is even specifically referenced in the film as um, in a in a positive light because uh, Hopper even brings Manson up by name. Um, and it I think what's interesting about American Dreamer is that it very much captures that counterculture that was always on the verge of absolute madness mm-hmm. um, because you have. Dennis Hopper out in the desert, you know, editing this movie and stuff, but then he's shooting automatic weapons. He's obviously dropping acid and drinking. He's having, you know, group sex. This is very much the, there's an almost cultish vibe to the family uh, of followers who's kind of follow who, you know, surrounding him at this point. Um, Because what were the dates when this was shot? Does anybody know? Um, it was, it was 1970, 1971. I mean, not exact, exact dates. Because I mean, the Manson murders were committed. It was uh, 1970. It was right after it was, was, Easy Rider was 69 was when that came out. So Manson murders were June 16th, 1970. So there's a fair chance that Manson murders were committed possibly while this was being filmed mm-hmm. like they yeah. coincide almost exactly so it's interesting to take this and like almost as a, as a historical document beyond talking about the american new wave and mm-hmm. talking about the last movie and its relationship to easy rider is more its relationship almost to the the fringe counterculture of the time and the counterculture that uh Dennis Hopper very much belonged to that was on the brink of madness at almost all, all turns, um, which is it, it, the movie sat with me really weird as this dual piece of both cinematic history and also just American history of like, this is what it was like in these times. And this is how close that even our greatest artists came to being, uh, insane people or were insane people in a, in a way because the last movie ended up pretty much exiling Dennis Hopper from Hollywood for the, yeah, the better I mean, decade. He fucking, yeah. Went to go hide. He, he fucking yeah. went in the desert. 
you know. Exactly. But I mean, also in 1970, 19, you know what, 69, 70, you would have had uh, fucking Nixon as president as well, which, you know, that changed a lot of shit uh, for, right. for a lot of people. And I, I think, you know, that that obviously has something to do with just, you know, the economy and, and things like that, just how people, you know, looked, uh, you know, just looked at things. And also the same time as uh, what, what fucking movie won Oscar in 1970, 1969, 1970. Cause I mean, easy rider was nominated. Wasn't love right? story nominated in 1970. I'm actually being serious. Probably. Love Story won some. Was it Midnight, Midnight Cowboy? Cowboy? Ooh, I got it before you. I didn't even look. <laughs> so, I mean, you have an X-rated movie at that point winning winning Oscar. So, I think a lot of that, you know, Hopper wanted to kind of live up. Um, he saw what was kind of happening and, and and the trends that were happening in Hollywood, and wanted to do something different. I mean, fucking Midnight Cowboys winning an Oscar. You know, I mean, think about that winning an Oscar now. <laughs> yeah, it'd be know? impossible. Right. So, you know, you have Hopper really trying to, I mean, you think about all that pressure for, for, for a person. It is maybe somebody as, you know, meeting all these people in so, so little time in his life, meeting these ginormous people uh, to him. I mean, fucking James Dean, John Wayne, all these people helping him with his career, backing him up. He's got to this point, And now what does he do? So I, I think, you know, this in, in, I think it's very insightful in, in his life, just kind of letting loose and kind of going crazy. Yeah. Going in the desert, shooting guns. He might be putting a little bit on for the camera, but he's actually right there, right then doing that shit. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he's, he's, I mean, he, he's involved he, in his film for sure. Right. He might be, you know, putting it on a little bit, maybe saying a couple lines crazy, you know, here or there. But as history shows now, okay, at that point, maybe he's putting it on for the camera. But fucking Dennis Hopper strapped dynamite to himself in, in a fucking coffin and blew himself up in the dynamite chair act in the, in, uh, like in the 80s. Like the dude's fucking legitimately like, kind of insane. Like if you – don't believe me, go to fucking YouTube, type in dynamite chair death act and watch him uh, like have fucking explosives strapped to this fucking coffin and blowing himself up. Right. Like it's insane. And that, so, and I was, I was also wrong. I forgot Manson murders are 1969, but no, I think it's still, I still think it was influenced. Yeah. But I mean, Nicholson, who's one of Hopper's best friends, is attending Manson's trial in 1970 at that point. Wow. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, like, it's there's some really odd historical things going on in this film. And at the same time, you have it being, you know, directed by L.M. Kit Carson, who would go on to write um, Texas Chainsaw 2. He would go on to write um, Paris, Texas for Vim Vendors. He would write the Breathless remake with uh, Richard Gere. Oh, shit. So, like, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, there's some interesting credits going on here, and he's the one. That's why I, I don't know if I 100% buy um, the uh, Hoppers playing an act for the camera at all because, like, Ellen Kit Carson was very much – I mean, he was an artist too. He wasn't just some guy with a camera who came in to follow him. Like he was 
on his well, way up as that- well. You mentioned, you know, fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, because Dennis Hopper kind of plays the same character. No, so exactly. He plays Lefty, yeah. You know, but I, but in a way, I could totally see your point, and I, I don't think we'll ever know because I mean, Kit Carson's, you know, obviously passed. Yeah, but he <laughs> yeah, he not died like what, like a couple years ago? Twenty fourteen, last year, wow. last oh, October. Oh wow, damn. Um, so, but. Honestly, maybe that's something like I'm writing this fucking crazy role for Hopper because he can really turn this out. I mean, look at fucking Blue Velvet. You know, uh, you know, he's just it's kind of the attitude that Hopper has always had. He's very gung ho with everything. But I honestly I think that's just part of his personality. Um, You know, he's he I'm not going to I think it would be unfair to call him crazy, but he can really turn that crazy on when he wants to. And yeah, he might've done it a little bit more because I mean, obviously this camera crew is going around saying, Hey man, you just fucking did easy rider. Let us, let us uh, film you during the editing of, you know, your latest motion picture. Well, fuck yeah, man, come on and let's do this shit. That's of course the attitude he's going to have. You know, and then, of course, you know, uh, was it Universal or whoever stepped in and, you know, kind of to want to not do it's kind of a fun history with with the movie because, uh, you know, history shows with with the making of the film and the release is that uh, I think it was Universal. Universal didn't want this to be done. So Dennis Hopper kind of he was set on as a producer, but then slowly backed away and didn't want to get involved because there was, um, you know, they said you cannot release this theatrically, uh, this documentary. So what they ended up doing was is that back in the day, um, college campuses were the biggest, like, kind of money makers for for movies like in the 60s and in the 60s and the 70s so uh if it was released at college campuses it wasn't considered a theatrical release Correct. so they went ahead and they did this and they released it in college campuses and so that's how they got the movie out and technically universal couldn't do anything because it was a loophole Wow. Well, and then like one of the colleges, they got in trouble. Yeah. That's how the movie got buried for years because one of the colleges like four walled the theater off campus. And yeah. then that gave Universal the grounds to basically file an injunction against it and basically keep it from <laughs> being seen for years and years and years. Yeah. And then years later, Dennis Hopper remembered it and then wanted to go through and kind of show show the world and then it went back on its you know festival not festival tour but you know underground tour being screened here and there and then of course the prints were found and now we have it. but i think it's kind of a you know a, a kind of a cool history with hopper and just who he truly is because uh, from interviews to – because I followed Hopper a lot. I, I think he's an incredible actor. He's definitely one of my favorites. And, you know, just just with this, I really enjoyed it, even though he's kind of – it is an asshole, like huge asshole sometimes in this in this documentary. But at the same Massive time – misogynist too. Oh, God, <laughs> dude, yes. So bad. Like 
my one of my favorite parts, but also it's like really fucked up, is that when he's sitting there and he's like the problem with a nymphomaniac is trying to get him to come. Like, right. you know, and I was like, God, dude, I'm fucking, what is wrong with you? I, I kind of had to do like a, like a double take, like, like, what did he just say? <laughs> you know? So, but no, I, I just, I think it's, I think it's a good, I think it's a good, you know, character piece and a character study just on human, a human being in general, uh, living up. Cause I mean, take any other filmmaker, I mean, and, and think about the pressure that was involved. I mean, think about, uh, well, Tarantino is probably different cause he knew he was hot shit. But, I mean, making something like Reservoir Dogs and then waiting in, until that next movie. I mean, we have that all the time. We have filmmakers that have such a substantial debut. Like, what are they going to do next? You know, that pressure that's involved. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a good aspect just on in, in filmmaking in general for any filmmaker, you know, worrying about what you're going to do next and what you're going to become. Uh, you know, I, I, I find it very, very intriguing, and you know, I, that's why I like this so much. Is is to watch this this man kind of just lose it in a way. Um, and I don't know; it could be an act. It couldn't. Who knows? But it's it's still Hopper being Hopper. Oh yeah. You know. Uh, so I, I, personally, I think this is fucking phenomenal. I think it's fucking great. So I am, I'm happy to finally see it, and I, I think it truly is, like, I mean, watching this and the last movie back-to-back is, like, mind-blowing to me. Agreed. I was going to say, were you about to see something, Jacob? Not, not really. Um, I mean, I, I totally agree with what Brad's saying. I just, I don't know if I was as on board with it. Because I don't know how much I could recommend it to people who don't have the uh, baseline knowledge uh, yeah. to appreciate it. Like this is very much a deep cut for people already interested in either this time period or Dennis Hopper. Um, because you can't just show this to somebody you know, cold. They'll be like, what is the point? I totally uh, showed it to my wife and she was interested. She came in as I was watching it. She kind of got dis- <laughs> disinterested disinterested after a while but for just kind of, a, kind of based on a historical thing like she was interested in like the 70s and everything and the music and just how everyone was acting you know uh, around each other and the, the way at the parties and so she was definitely interested in in that aspect i mean you know she's couldn't really uh remember like where she's seen dennis hopper or, like what movies you know like i think speed was the one that the number one that she was like, oh yeah, that guy, <laughs> you know, fucking speed. But um, but I think it's, I think there is interest there. But yeah, it, it is a deep cut. It it had to be somebody who likes documentaries and things like that. You can't just uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, watch this Dennis Hopper thing. You know, I completely agree with that. But also, I think it's a, it's a very intimate portrait on just someone. Because I mean, with a lot of documentaries, we go in without knowing kind of the background. I mean, I think that's the beauty of documentaries is, is going in without knowing and learning, learning about something that is unknown. Um, and, and I think this is, yes, they don't get into the filmmaking aspect of kind of the easy writer and, you know, the history of what inspired the last movie, which was, 
an experience that Hopper had back in, you know, the fifties um, and, 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 you know, the success of easy rider and then coming off of that, making this, they don't dive into that too much, but I think it's a good kind of character piece and a character study and an intimate portrait of a man's life trying to accomplish something. Yes, they don't achieve it in the documentary, so I understand what you're saying, how it would be a deep cut, because there's obviously some historical factors that play into that to fully comprehend everything. But I think as just kind of a documentary alone, if people are really into documentaries, I think they would dig it. Yeah. But I think coming cold, yeah, I, I think that could definitely throw some people off. But I think for anybody that at least knows kind of, you know, Hopper and his Hopper's history and just, you know, how he works in the movies that he's involved with in the projects, I, I, I think I think people could get into it. I, I, I really think they could. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I mean it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I think you may have to be in the right mindset for it, but um Yeah, you have to be in the mood for something like this because yeah. it, it definitely it can catch you off guard because I mean I kind of even, I mean, I'm a big Hopper fan, and I kind of know how he is. And at first, I was like, I was actually watching it, and Janice was uh, doing schoolwork, sitting on her laptop. And she looks over, and she goes, what the hell are you watching? And I'm like, oh, it's, you know, this documentary goes, can you get me the headphones? I don't want to watch this pretentious shit. <laughs> so, you know, eh, there you go. <laughs> Do you so. get that a lot in your house where she just looks over and goes, what the hell are you watching? Yeah, no, I get that. I get that a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I sometimes I, you know, you know, after Willow goes to bed, I'll pull out something that's really fucking weird or, you know, some shot on video shit and she'll walk in and she won't understand, <laughs> which most people don't, I guess. But that's fine. Especially when you're masturbating to it. Especially. Especially. Yes. I think, I think for, for fans of film and, and fans of film history and restoration and things like that, I think, uh, this thing's a, you know, something you'd want to add to your collection. Cause there's a great, uh, documentary on how, documentary on how they, you know, restored it and, you know, and where, where the prints were and, and everything. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, a, it's called a long way home. It's yeah. really fucking good. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, a, it's only seven minutes, but it's really like, at seven minutes, you really comprehend like everything that yeah. kind of went into this. It's a pack seven minutes. Yeah. Like it's really fucking good editing on the, on the uh, little miniature documentary. On Is the there documentary. anything else on this? Cause that's the only thing that I watched. I know there's other, yeah, there's a, there's a making of featurette. That's, it's kind of, I don't know. It, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not as insightful as a seven minute doc, but that's hilarious. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I think, <clears throat> I think etiquette pictures is out with a bang. Um, coming out the gates I mean, with a bang here. Yeah. These uh, fucking especially with releases, the releases like, I mean, I mean, I'm proud to hold these two in my hand. Like, this is something that you can really, like, if you, if you, are you making, are you think I'm telling a dick joke? <laughs> no, yep. well, well, kind of. <laughs> All right, never mind. I'm done. I'm, I'm just, I'm just so glad to hold this in my hand. And I don't know. I think, I think it's, I think it's a cool little, you know, two movies. Excuse me. Brad, I think you're a cool little two movies. 
Thanks. Well, what, what I think I think it shows also where NK Pictures is going, like with these types of films, like just how Vinegar Syndrome has always wanted to curate kind of the weird and odd films that no one else really wants to pay attention to. Other than that, there's certain other ones that they release, you know, like like Madman and things like that that had a following, but you know, things like Nightmare Weekend and and just um, oh gosh, what's the uh, What's the one with the guys who who are worm farmers? N- Runaway Nightmare. Runaway Nightmare. Yeah. Things like that. Um, here we have Etiquette Pictures looking for things that you know a little more on the art house, art house, you know, side of things, but still. Yeah, like, they're, they're interested in finding things that like not even Criterion is going to touch. Did you yeah. fucking see that reverse sleeve for American Dreamer though? Oh, is there a reverse sleeve? I don't even know. Oh God, dude! It's so, well, there's reverse sleeves for both of them. Nice. But um, the reverse sleeve is just a huge picture of fucking Dennis Hopper with a fucking cigarette in his mouth. Nice. It's black and white. It's pretty fucking pimp. <laughs> he does look good, uh, especially holding that. Whoa, uh, whoa. I know he does, you know, all the, all the denim. Speaking my c- language all the, now. The, the cigarettes and the guns. I mean, <coughs> you know, that dude is a posing machine with all that stuff. <coughs> That's one thing about the yes. 70s is everyone had a cigarette hanging out of their mouth. I guess. And everyone looked like they hadn't taken a shower in about a week. Yeah, the first scene, fucking Hopper's out of the shower. Well, I know, but he still <laughs> looked like he needed a shower when he was done. Yeah, you definitely see Dennis Hopper's taint. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. He gets naked a lot, which is kind of fun. I mean, good. Wow. All right. If you know what I'm talking about. Awesome. All right. Uh, I, I think we can move along here. Yeah, but, probably. Uh, I'm really excited to see, you know, their etiquette pictures. What else do they have coming along? They have a sweet, sweet backs, badass song, right? Yeah, there's some black exploitation in, yep. in the pipes. Yep. Really oh, they're doing, they're doing sweet, sweet back. Yeah. Yeah, they, did, they, yeah they're doing not... Dolmite and uh, a couple other things. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are cool. Like, those are titles that people actually know, too. Yeah. Yeah. They got some cool shit. They're even promising bigger and better things next year, so. We'll All see. right. Awesome. All right. Um, let's jump into our two segments here. Um, yes. Here we go. Let's start out with uh, video. Oh, my God. Why? We do stream, stream screams first. What? We do stream screams first, usually. I don't care. Nate, wake up. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. Don't fucking scream at me. Scream, I'll break your neck. <laughs> Don't scream, miss. Don't scream. All right, let's talk about stream screams. He knows you're alone. Jackass. Okay, fine. Stream screams. He knows you're alone. He knows you're alone. Wow. Um... This one is, is is most notoriously known for uh, one of I think it was Tom Hanks' uh, first was it his first role or an early role? Uh, I think it's his first one in uh, nineteen eighty, and uh, you know, kind of uh, n- another slasher. But this one, the uh, the victims are women who are about to get married. Is that is that correct? Bridal, yeah, bridal, bridal parties, yeah, and. Uh, 
You know, I'm kind of hit or miss with slashers. But, uh, oh, okay, you're done. Um, I, had, I had a lot of, you didn't even let me finish. I had a lot of fun with this one. And uh, it's probably one of the, my favorite 80s slashers I've seen in, in quite a while. So, um, well, Jesus, really? Well, I mean, you know. Okay. I'm pretty harsh with slashers, and I had he, fun he with ate, He hates everything. If it's not Bay, no way. <laughs> Shut up. So... But, I mean, this is coming off the success of, of course, Halloween, like most slashers did in the, you know, 1980s and 1981. But I think this one's a little bit more unique because, yes, they do kind of follow those slasher tropes. But at the same time, it's like, boom, here's your killer. This is who you're going to be afraid of the whole entire movie. And I kind of like that approach to this rather than, you know, making it an unseen killer the whole time. We're very aware what this guy looks like, so we're kind of trying to look for him on screen just the same as kind of our characters are. And even though it might not be the most eventful slasher there is, but I I think I can appreciate them trying to do something a little newer with with kind of how everything was going. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I I think it's – when knowing who the killer is, I think it's a little bit more suspenseful than having a mass killer. Because when you have a mask killer the whole time, unless it's something like Michael Myers where you know who's behind the mask, you just don't see his face, which is scary. But when you're trying to figure out who the killer is, it kind of takes the fun out of movies sometimes because I think too many people are are set to try to figure out who it is before the movie ends. And I think that kind of takes you out of the picture a little bit when when you're watching it. I think going in and knowing that person and i think that increases the sense of dread for films like this so you know you're waiting for that person to show up you're not waiting for that you know medium shot with the person's head cut out with just their chest and the fucking gloves on with a knife you know dressed in black you're not seeing that you're actually seeing killer in full focus right off the bat i think that i think that does help in a way knowing who your killer is and I, well, I think that's the, kind of the difference with this film. Well, he's kind of like the proto Russ Thorne in that regard. Is Dude, that he, he looks like Russ Thorne. Yeah, doesn't he? he yeah, like when like it first like came out, I was like, holy shit, is this a, is this a Russ Thorne movie? Yeah. But yeah, like he totally looks he, like those, those like batshit crazy eyes, like wide yeah. open. He's totally fucking – I'm glad you said because I was actually going to men- mention that. It was in my notes. Fucking Russ Thorne. Yeah, but yeah. Just like the killer or at least the – now the uh, I guess mold for the killer for Sumber Party Massacre, but I don't know. Like I think this movie is very much, I mean, it's very much the Halloween uh, riff because it even yeah. steals whole shot setups from Carpenter's Halloween. I mean, even with having you know the three girls. Um, oh yeah, no, totally. Best friends yeah. and walking down the street, and that's the other thing is these are all supposed to be like graduate school uh you know aged girls and um women young women who are about to get married and they still and speak and act very much like teenagers when they're together so it almost feels like this guy making this movie about young women but there was either some like studio exec or somebody on the rewrites saying like oh no 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 they have to talk more <laughs> Like the three girls from Halloween, like 100 percent. No, I mean, I think that's the, you know, the target audience they were trying to hit, too, you know. 
right. I think it was one of those things where it probably is, you know, filmmakers point and also studio coming in saying, hey, you know, well, we have to market this towards, you know, teenagers. So we don't want everybody talking to fucking bridal shit because, you know, we want 15 year olds in the fucking theater or younger watching this, you know, slasher film. So, of course, yeah, I think I think that's a good, you know, a good outlook on it is that, you know, your kids, your adults, quote unquote, are very childlike and childish. Yeah. And then so, it's. It's again another movie that's interestingly peppered with familiar faces. You have Paul Gleason, um, yeah. most will know from uh, The Breakfast Club, mm-hmm. you know, as the one detective. You have Tom Hanks, obviously. You have James, James Redborn. Redborn. Yeah, as the, as the uh, oh, yeah. philandering professor. Um, it's a really odd, it's a really well cast movie. Uh, but, and I also kind of like the, the whole idea of killing brides right before their, their wedding is, it it does two things for me is a, it's like inherently mean spirited. Like that's like the meanest fucking thing you can do. It's like, Oh, you're about to enjoy the happiest day of your life. Now I'm going to murder you. Um, and then B, it almost feels like a direct update of what Carpenter was doing with Halloween in terms of taking this symbolism of what we kind of associate safety with and with, because with like Halloween, you have the suburbs being attacked by essentially this faceless evil. That's just preying on these young women in this film. It's very much taking the, uh, the imagery of what people associate with a, the happiest day in a woman's life and having it be violated by this man who's coming in to stab them. And it's, again, it's subverting that idea of safety that the slasher film does really well. It just sucks that the rest of the movie is kind of boring. Well, yeah, I, I think, I think they were leaning on, because the cool thing about Halloween is that it builds that sense of dread. I think they were really trying to do that, especially with, you know, our, our lead, um, what is it, uh, Amy, I think is her name. Um, kind of the, the, yeah, whatever her name is. (laughs) But she, um, you know, trying, you know, dealing with seeing him, you know, she sees him when she's getting ice cream. She sees him, you know, at the, you know, the, the fair, sees him actually, inside one of the rides, but I don't think there's that emotional attachment to her as like we had with like Laurie Strode. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's because of acting, if it's because of script, um, mainly probably because of the script, because of what, you know, maybe the film was originally trying to be. Cause I can also kind of see this film leaning towards kind of, uh, kind of a giallo mean-spirited thing with the brides. Like, you know, what if you gave this filmmaker full, you know, full reign to do what he wants? Um, you know, it could have been kind of, you know, a, kind of a giallo slasher. But instead, we got this, like, pseudo, like, Halloween uh, spin in order to please audiences at the movie theaters at that time. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it, I mean, it, it can go both ways. I mean, another movie that I would kind of like to know, like, kind of the back history, you know, production-wise of something going on. This is the reason why the movie always fascinated me, because it it seems that it can't find a place 
like it wants to be all these different movies, but was trying to be so many different things that it couldn't find and solidify one thing. It was just kind of stealing from all these different movies, and then that's it. Well, I, I like that it, it does steal from other movies, but I like that it also, you know, once Tom Hanks appears and they're, I think they're at the amusement park, he's kind of commenting on horror films and, and being scared or what it means to be scared or why, because he's like a psych major or something like that. Uh, I thought that was pretty clever, you know, when, no, when they're bringing that up. I actually didn't, I, I thought of that when I was watching it too, is that he almost seems like the very, very like, almost like caveman version of what would essentially become Randy from screen. Right. Exactly. Like yeah. The guy who just shows up to comment on the film itself. Yeah. Well, this is a huge movie inspired for screen. That's Kevin Williamson got the Randy character from him. Oh, really? so he fucking steals the opening of, he knows you're alone for scream too. Oh, that's right. With the uh, fucking movie theater and shit. Yeah. This is oh, a huge yes, influence for yes, screen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a huge influence. I mean, Kevin Williamson has always loved this movie, but yeah, that's there was an interview where he even said the Randy character is kind of, you know, it's a it's a mixture of this what he said was is that there's like, you know, a few horror films in his life where he saw the characters in the films kind of be self-aware of the reality and the harshness of maybe a killer in the real world comparing them to movies Mm -hmm. and that was one of them and also i mean fucking yeah the opening to scream 2 is the fucking this movie yeah yeah i love the opening to to this movie yeah i mean it just screamed better it's (laughs) horrifying the way they the way they do it in this one more much more than scream 2 i mean it's it's uh you know um you, you you kind of just put yourself in that situation too you know well, I mean, I think it's that same thing is, you know, uh, you know, kind of what Halloween did is someone screams in Halloween, no one's going to go running. If right. someone screams in the theater, no one's going to go running. Exactly. I, th- I think it's I think it's just putting people in that situation where you wouldn't raise a flag if you heard something out of the ordinary because the ordinary is the common. Yeah. So in too bad the movie doesn't follow suit like the opening so yeah. much, but. You know, it's. I think of all the kind of the you know all the slashers, the abundance of slashers that came out. He knows you're alone is at least trying to achieve something different by little things, and that's what sticks out for me. Versus kind of just you know a, a slice and dice movie. Yeah, like they literally did try a few new things, but like I said, they were trying to also copy a lot of things and not be able to a movie to for it stand on its own. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reason why it is very underseen and kind of one of the slashers that's a lot lower on the list. Cause I mean, this thing had a fucking DVD release at one point. Now it's like super out of print and now it's thrown up on voodoo at least in HD, which is cool. Yeah. So, um, also, it's, yeah, it's cool seeing like how, great of an actor Tom Hanks was even back then because once he appears it's like he's and I don't know if it's just because we're familiar with him you know but I think he's it's almost you're familiar with him. on another level you know but maybe that is just because we're just used yeah. to him we're used to seeing him but it's really fun to see him you know show up in the in the flick 
But I, I don't know. I, I think it's a good entry, uh, you know, with slashers if you're trying to get into it or, you know, it's just, it's just a, I, I think it's a fun movie. I mean, there's, think of all the fucking slashers and all the fucking horror movies. I, I think this is a, definitely one of the more well-made ones, um, for sure. And, uh, you know, definitely a film that's inspired by the genre in general. Um, just too bad they try to copy so much of everything that was happening. Mm-hmm. So, sure, sure. But no, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's definitely worth a rent um, on Vudu, and it's what is it like seventeen ninety nine to buy on Vudu? Uh I can't remember. I think I I bought it. And it was actually pretty cheap when I when I bought it. I don't know if they, it was like on sale no. or something. But. Um, you know, I, I think this is. I don't know. I don't know who this is. I thought this is by Lionsgate now, who owns it. So that means that obviously we're not going to get any DVD or Blu-ray release of it. I thought it was a Warner. It. I thought it was a Warner title. I don't know. I don't know either. I was thinking MGM. If it's MGM, that might be nice. You might get a Blu-ray from uh, Screen Factory or something. Yeah, maybe I rented it. I think I rented it. It's like thirteen ninety nine, so I highly doubt I bought it. It's, it's still not not too bad for you know for something yeah, the, like this that's unavailable on you know DVD for right now. Yeah, the D, the DVD is an out of print Warner like archive style title. Okay. No, I have it here actually on my desk. It says Warner Brothers um, on Voodoo, and I actually I do own it. I did buy it. Yeah, it is one. Yeah. So, yeah. hey, it's $40 now. It will still not be released on Blu-ray yeah. from nope. Warner Brothers. You won't be seeing this. But, and we talk about this all, all the time whenever we do the segment is, you know, I feel like a lot of companies are just unloading their horror titles digitally because it's, it's probably cheaper. You know, and, and uh, who knows? Who knows if they're tracking the interest or not? But uh, at least they're available somewhere in a decent picture. You know? Yeah, I mean it, the the HD version of this looks really good. Um, you know, I have it on DVD. It definitely looks better than the DVD. Yeah. Um. So it, definitely for thirteen ninety nine versus what it costs to fucking buy an out of print DVD for fifty bucks, I think it's worth it for sure. Yeah. Very cool. So, all right, now let's move into video. Oh my god! Ugh, dude, you sound like you're. Fucking <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh. Nikki. Well, here we are at last, right where we ought to be. Video. Oh my god! This is a film that I don't think I've ever heard of before Brad mentioned it. It's called Most uh, People Have It. It is called House of Yellow Carpet or House of the Yellow Carpet. House uh, of the Yellow Carpet. It's from nineteen eighty three and I think I was expecting kind of a Giallo type film. Uh, it isn't Most people are because it's Italian. That's how it's uh, promoted as. But it seems a lot more subtle, a lot more laid back than the, uh, uh, just a giallo. It's more of a... It's a, more of a murder mystery. Yeah, murder mystery. I, and I think this was based off of a stage play. Because it um, felt very stagey. You know, like the movie uh, Bug. You know, very contained in one area. 
Um, I thought that I read that it was based on a stage play. I could be wrong, but it felt that way. It, it, it looks be. like it feels very much like the Giallo take on like Hitchcock's rope. Huh. Which is single space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I could I could I could see that too. I, I remember you mentioning that. It's like you know, I think what kind of made this film kind of suffer is it being kind of promoted as a giallo, because mm-hmm. even when you look it up, it still says Italian Giallo. I, I think, well, to me, there is... Yellow is a, yellow in Italian. Mm. Right, I understand mm-hmm. that. So that's why they do it. Mm. But it's Brad, still considered... It, it's... Are you fucking kidding me? This <laughs> It's promoted still as yellow. I understand that yellow means yellow. But I'm still saying that when people say yellow, do you think that you're going to get, you know... Yeah. This Dario Argento, you know, black rubber gloves around a woman's <laughs> neck and blood dripping down her breasts. It's immediately like what people think of. You know, you're going to get something that's heavy, that's violent, you know, that's really well shot, that's very colorful. And honestly, I think in a way, Jello has also spread to just kind of a style of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Suspiria, I think, is a great example of that because, I mean, Suspiria, if you take the traditional Giallo film, Suspiria is not that. It's more or less kind of a style of filmmaking and it follows suit to Argento's style, which I think he's, you know, he's the main proponent of saying, hey, you know, let's kind of go this direction with this. You know, you had, you know, the man who knew too much, you know, Bava started that kind of that mysterious you know, murder mystery and Argento took it to another level, make it more stylistic. So I think that's kind of the aspect that we need to look at this film on rather than making it, you know, kind of a slasher with a killer of black gloves. Yeah. I mean, there is still somewhat of a gore element to it in small doses, but um, it it is actually based on a play called theater at home by Aldo Soleri. Cool. FYI. (laughs) <laughs> wow, yep. that's really going to help us right now. <laughs> it's inter- I thought it was interesting. Uh huh. <laughs> what else do you find interesting? I, I don't know. But uh, what, so, what, what is the what is the plot? Can we can we get to a consensus on what the, the uh, I think plot the plot is? is I, the reason why this movie's always a treat, intrigued me is that I forget how I came across. I mean, I have the tape. Of it, I you know it was just one of those things where I thought you know probably I was buying box lots off of eBay when I was like you know sixteen buying you know hundred movies you know from a out of you know going out of business video store or whatever um, and I just came across it because the title always intrigued me because it's such a it's such a weird it's a boring it it really is a boring title but right. it also it it does intrigue you because you're like what the fuck you know what does the yellow carpet have to do with anything. And I remember originally reading about the plot, like on, uh, I always mention all movie guide, you know, from like the nineties. Um, I, I remember reading on there that the carpet made you kill people. So that's the reason why I wanted to watch it. But then when I watched it, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is not what it is. You know, it's a very, you know, kind of murder mystery. Um, you know, another movie that has the place that sense of dread, 
of why, you know, this guy that keeps coming to this house that wants to, you know, uh, buy this carpet that this, you know, this couple has. So, um, but I mean, ultimately that's kind of what it is. You know, it's, it's, it's about, um, uh, they, this couple decides to, uh, sell, um, a rug essentially, um, that was a gift to them. And then this guy comes around wanting to buy a carpet and it kind of goes into of why he wants the rug mm-hmm. back or why he wants the rug in general. So it becomes kind of that murder mystery of what this guy has done. The reason why he wants this carpet back. What does the carpet hold? Um, you know, does the carpet turn you into a murderous being is what I thought when I was younger. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it's just a, I think it's a unique, a unique movie. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that you don't pick up and you really see every day. Yeah. So that's the reason why I've always kind of been partial to this one. And also it just never got much play. You know, it was just one of those really underseen movies I've seen, you know, that I've always known about. I would love to see a, a, a decent print of this for sure. Yeah, I, the what I, I saw the VHS <laughs> version and it, there's, you know, I mean it is in one location pretty much, but it seems like they tried to do a lot with like you know some cinematography and and the color like that yellow carpet and, and everything. But yeah, I would love well, I mean, to, I would love to see it in a in a higher quality. Picture. Yeah, I I think with. You know, it being a better quality picture, I think you would get that sense of isolation and that sense of confinement in this movie. Because, I mean, there's minimal, minimal characters in this film. I mean, we have the two that we have the couple that's selling the rug. We have the stranger and then somebody else. I don't think there's very many other characters other than that. And pretty much the whole and another reason why it was probably a stage play is that it takes place in the apartment pretty much the whole movie. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think there's a few things with, you know, a decent print of this movie being, you know, transferred to DVD or Blu-ray, you know, or any, you know, digital digital service. I think we could really, you know, bring out the colors. We could bring out, you know, the soundtrack to give us that sense of confinement. And I think that's what works in this kind of, this bizarre uh, film in general is that, you know, you really can't go anywhere. And, and I like, you know, films that take place in one location, they're fun because it gives you that sense that there is no outside world. And, you know, you don't ever really have to ask that question because once your character kind of goes outside, it's like, well, why don't you just leave? You know, when, when the characters don't leave and they're confined to one area, it makes you feel that the whole world is just right in that room. And I don't know. I, I find that, I find that intriguing and fun. Yeah. So. Very cool. It also, uh, it also works as a real interesting to kind of bounce off of the whole idea of the giallo and how it kind of plays with it is that it almost acts as a neat deconstruction of like giallo themes that are usually found because it's very much about these guys not to spoil anything but uh about basically a woman being attacked in her home 
and then finding out the truth behind the attack into the point of almost being like a movie that psycho analyzes the uh, typical kind of giallo woman protagonist. Um, and obviously there's a twist at the end of the film that allows you to kind of go into that a little more. But uh, I thought it was really neat. It almost becomes like a meta film about this weird Italian genre. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some twists and turns that I think for sure the movie messes with you and messes with the audience. Um, I just would think that would kind of be, you know, the film would be a lot larger scale if it was bigger. I think it would have made more of an impact, but sadly it didn't. I mean, it was basically unheard of this whole entire time and still is, you know, very underseen. Yeah, things like how, you know, it's frustrating when we do these because it's like, how can people catch these, you know? Uh, I think there is a version, I think if there is a version on YouTube, there's a rip of it there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, think it was, it, I think it was released on DVD, like an Italian DVD. Okay. Cause I, I think I remember seeing it on Diabolic DVD, um, but, I don't even know if it had American, you know, or not uh, American, but English subtitles. So I, I don't. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you know I like talking about these films, but at the same time, it's like, where do you obtain them? Yeah, you know, you have to go through you know a couple obstacles maybe to see them. They're not legal obstacles, but it, the point is, is that you know. We have all these companies, you know, like, for example, I mean, we talked about two films that were kind of lost already, you know, with uh, Some Call It Loving and, um, you know, The American Dreamer. There's plenty of other films. So if we talk about them, somebody's got to be, you know, discussing them and sharing them in order for, you know, yeah. something to spark or for another company to listen and be like, oh, these guys are talking about this movie. Let's check it out and save it. Because I think this is definitely a film that probably could be saved because I've literally I mean probably what's the I haven't checked the price on Amazon for the tape but I'm pretty sure it's quite up there I mean I've only seen my copy I have a copy on tape but that's it you know I've never seen it anywhere else I don't remember seeing it on the shelf as a kid so you know this is definitely something that needs to be saved uh Fucking Crypt of Living Dead could be on Blu-ray. Fucking House of the Yellow Carpet Camp. Definitely more entertaining. <laughs> uh, totally, yeah. It's a better <laughs> film than Crypt of Living Dead for sure. Yeah, 49 bucks for a VHS tape. Yeah, Used. see, that's one. There's a brand new one for $199. See, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, fucking, uh, yeah, I have it on tape, but what the fuck am I going to do with it? You know, it's it's one of those things that no one's going to pay 50 bucks to, you know, buy a tape. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a huge avid tape collector. I've never fucking bought a tape for fifty dollars, <laughs> you know. So I mean, who the fuck's gonna do that? Yeah, it's out of print, but you know, fucking have it on YouTube. You know, talk about these films, and no matter if it's illegal or what. Like, no one is losing money. Well, yeah, in this case, this is one of those cases that we say every time you know? we talk about these. This is one of those cases where I think we have to go. Do, uh, well, you know, and that's the only way for the movie, things. like, if no one downloaded it and no one shared it, the movie would die. Yeah. 
because in order for more people to talk about it and request it from whatever company could release it, that's the only way people are going to talk about it. Yeah. You know, is if it's shared. So, you know, it's one of those things where piracy does come into play for the better, you know, with, with films like this is to get the word out and spread it that this movie is cool, that it needs to be seen, that it needs to be saved. So by all means, like fucking watch this on YouTube, share it with your friends and just, you know, tell, tell everybody, request it for vinegar syndrome or fucking code red and tell them to fucking pick it up and, and release it. Give it another life. Yeah. You know, cause it's, this is one of these films that could slowly die out and never be seen again. Yep. Yeah. And the full movie is available on, uh, on YouTube. I just confirmed it. So we will put a link in the show notes for sure. <coughs> All right, gentlemen. Um, it is getting it is getting late. Yes. So um, I'm getting tired. You guys got to be oh. way more tired than me because you're on the you're farther along uh, in time zones. You're further ahead of me. Um, Thank you for bringing it up. Yep. Ah, uh, you're welcome. So. Um, so yeah, check out uh, Etiquette Pictures, Etiquette Syndrome. And, um, Exploitation TV. Exploitation TV. And, uh, I need to get out there more. I, they're, they're still doing the, it's only on, uh, on, uh, Roku, right? They're, yeah, Roku and, uh, you know, just the, the mobile, yeah, mobile device. Yeah. And, I mean, okay. you can watch them on there. But yeah, Roku, it's a private channel. So you have to add that, um, to your listing. It's just not going to come up. You have to add it as a private channel mainly because of the pornography, and you can watch it on your TV. Um, there has there have been reports of uh, the movies failing to play sometimes, so uh, it's, it is a known issue, and I know they are working on it. It's like kind of off and on for some people. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Hmm, okay. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. Cool. Yeah, it's a... A lot of people discovering it and, and having fun with it, so it's, it's cool seeing people discover it. Um, all right, and Jacob, where can people find your writing? Right now, I'm solely at Birth Movies Death. Okay, very cool. So check out that's it. Apparently, Birth, Jacob Birth Q-Nice. Movies Death. Check out his writings over there at Birth Movies. Is it BirthMoviesDeath.com? <laughs> it is BirthMoviesDeath.com. Very nice, and. Uh, Everyone knows where to find me and Brad. In hell. In hell. <laughs> exactly. Fiercely masturbating to Fiercely 70s masturbating porn. to Tracy Lords. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Not Tracy Lords. Yeah, I'm, I'd always, I was always kind of a Shannon Tweed or Maria Ford guy. Okay. I, I think this could be another article, Brad. I'm gonna, yeah, Maria Ford it. movies. Let's talk about Maria Ford movies for a minute. <laughs> so, but anyways, yeah, awesome. All right, well, if you have a great week, uh, check out our sponsors. Go to thescreamcast.com/sponsors and give them all some love. Um, Cop Shop of Horrors and and uh, Grindhouse Video, of course. Check them out and use the use the coupon codes if you order something for them. I uh, Check out the website, of course, thescreamcast.com. We're having more and more articles and lists posted uh, per week, so check those out. 
and uh, we hope to have more and more on there as uh, more writers start jumping on board. And uh, otherwise, all of you guys have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Oh, don't tell me you're leaving. The party's just begun. I'm introducing you as the Q. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, dude, dude, you can't make me laugh. We'll call. <laughs>